Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Join us in person or online for Canada's only occult conference. Visit Vancouver in beautiful British Columbia and help us leave lockdowns behind us and get back to life. The first of four D and Kelly conferences over the next four years support the Arcane Research Society in bringing excellence in academic scholarship and practical knowledge from some of the best scholars and occultists in the field. Featuring in 2024 this summer, Dr. Terry Burns, translator of Dr. John Dee's famous Monus Hieroglyphica. Dr. Burns has just completed a 52-video course on this mystical text, which you can watch on YouTube for free. Join us and experts Rufus Opus, P.D. Newman, J. Allen Moore, Daniel Rekshan, Frater R.C., and more for this exciting event which will explore the angelic and spirit-filled world of Elizabethan mages, Dr. John Dee, and the alchemist Sir Edward Kelly. Learn the secrets of drawing spirits into crystals, conjuration, and Enochian angel magic, as well as the role of dreams and their connections to these other extra-dimensional realities and alchemical transformation. Sign up today to attend online or in person, at enochiacon.com, presented by the Arcane Research Society. Welcome to Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast, Dr. Terry Burns. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And with most uh, of my favorite guests, uh, and you're among them, I'm always more nervous than I expect to be, so I'll do my best to keep it together. I fell apart on my Scott Stenwick interview on Enochia Magic just... Couldn't hold it to my excitement together, and God, <laughs> hopefully he'll let me do a round two with him one day. Um, but again, oh, with the people I'm excited to talk to, because I'm so passionate about the things I study, it's just, uh, yeah, sometimes a bit. A bit I just want to say I really enjoyed your podcast. I've I've watched a couple of them and really enjoyed it, and I plan to watch more. And uh, um, obviously, my cat over here loves it too, because he's crowding in on my space. So. Anyway. Oh, that's that's great. I'm, I thank you. Yeah. Well, the idea was just to like how you know it started during COVID, just to have those like try and have those long conversations that you'd have with your friends that would keep you up all night that you'd get lost in and you'd forget that time was passing. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if we just tried to have conversations like that? And it did take off. It it took off, and I was very surprised. I'd tried podcast yeah. ideas and formats before, and it they'd always crashed and burned. Though that could have just been not having all day every day free as I did during lockdowns for three years. Yeah. Oh, there's that yeah hopefully it was better in your neck of the woods than it was up in canada but it was pretty rough here i know it, it it was not a good time anywhere i don't think but you know that is i finally finished writing projects that i had on hold for years so there was that i mean that was nice but it was sort of a miserable time yeah I mean. yeah <laughs> and that's why we're here is the writing project you published uh, you put out the uh new version of John Dee's Monus Hieroglyphica, and a lot of us have been familiar with this text for many, many years and uh, struggled with it. Well, centuries people have been familiar with this text. <laughs> John Dee's been beating kings and emperors and queens over the head with it for, it seems like, forever, and uh, maybe with good reason, as we now know. I know from my background, seeing, um, having it, every adept I had in, in the Golden Dawn in my background, 
did it did their best to try and give a lecture on the monas it was like a rite of passage almost for adepti to try and be like okay this is what's going on now they must have been working out of jostin because it was always an alchemical mm -hmm. approach this is an approach of alchemy trying to actually turn something Legible. into something yeah. maybe led into gold i'm sure different adepts mm -hmm. had different takes on it and but they also they inevitably noticed that there was something else going on and being golden dawn adepts tried to make sense of it in some way as best they could in a three-hour lecture for, mm -hmm. for for higher grade members or whatever but it, it compared to what you've done it shows how impossible that task was for most people well, in the past yeah. it, it, the language requirements the accessibility to a clear translation um were uh of course not just crucial for the text but d even him made himself made went went through a lot of effort to make sure that the text was rendered a certain way and so mm -hmm. i would love yeah. for people to hear a bit about what makes your translation and dr turner's who you did it with so different from the ones that came before it and what made you so passionate to spend over a decade of your life studying this well it could be you have to understand it could be because i'm nuts but i'll give you the answer as if i'm i, I was not okay because i i did get really kind of obsessed with it and partly was starting out just with arrogance of, well, no one no one thinks they can understand this. Well, I can understand this. And by that time, I was so deep into it um, that, um, and I have a background in language and literature and all of that, but it also struck me that there weren't any good translations. And things, difficult texts don't make sense if you don't have good translations. And then everyone would say, well, and the Jostin translation. And C.H. Jostin was a brilliant, brilliant man. So absolutely brilliant man. He was a curator of the, of the museum at Oxford. I mean, he had, but if you assume that something is something different than what you think, then that just doesn't make any sense. Um, I was also just his kind of a side hustle, sort of into cryptography, and I was in this Voynich group, and there was a guy who always posted as Glenn Claston, he's deceased now, his real name was Tim Rahill, and he worked um, on such things, and this was like how he relaxed. And he's like, this has got to be a cryptography text, it's got to be a cryptography text. But at that time, since you're telling your uh, Golden Dawn story, I'll, I'll tell one of mine, I, when I first started it, I was also um, going through the order and noticing, like, this looks like what I just studied for a knowledge lecture. No, 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 it can't be that. Okay. Well, then we go get into Vincent Bridges' stories because, of course, Vincent, who didn't have, uh, what, problems with lack of confidence, insisted that he understood it. And he he wrote that outline. And so every now and then you are lucky when you trust a rather arrogant person and they actually do seem to know what they're talking about. So he had insisted that the first uh, the first 10 theorems were about placements on the tree of life. Now, from my my academic background, I knew that there was this whole group of this insistence that, well, John D. didn't know Kabbalah and da, 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 da. But he says it's a Kabbalistic text. So that just seemed kind of ill-advised. You know, if someone says, I'm going to give a Kabbalistic explanation, like believe them. And hope, so, I mean, On the I title also, page. Yeah. So, I mean, I also, I also had a lot of luck really. And I had everyone who came before me to stand on. And then, um, there was also between the time that we did the first 17 theorems, um, 
And when we finished, James Egan's translation came out. And now I want to I want to plug Egan's his explanation of sacred geometry and number. They're they're really excellent. His Latin is not excellent, and I don't think I would hurt his feelings because he says like, well, I don't know Latin, but here's my translation of Latin, and it's not not very good. But he was not looking at it. As, he was in terms of Kabbalah. He was looking at it in terms of numbers. So there was all this kind of stuff going on. Plus, I just love uh, old languages. And then we could get into sort of weird deja vus. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, I've read that before. Who knows if I had or not. But that kind of carried me through a, a lot of, of craziness. And then I was working on Enochian stuff then with Alan. And so we we just kept going. And I, I did really deeply appreciate the support of William Kiesel at Orboros Press because I we kept, you know, we were going to be done and going to be done and we weren't done. And then finally COVID finished and we were done. But that may not be at all an answer to what you were asking, but that's how, uh, that's the best I can do. I mean, I just got sort of obsessed with it and I don't really like problems that I can't solve, even though, you know, can't like it it still it frustrates me that there's those letters in 22 and we've got some of them and i think what they show is is just awesome i mean you reverse engineer it from rosicrucian's uh, uh, things as you of i have have written back and forth about a little bit but not knowing exactly what those hebrew letters mean just just drives me nuts i did wonder and this is the last of my golden dawn stories in my opening ramble here but when you get to theorem 16, which is that LVX theorem, and it's the only known source we have for the signs of the adept used in multiple orders, I like, I would, I always wondered, like, doesn't that say this is important and it's important in terms of, of ceremonial magic? Like, why, why else would it be there? So that anyway. Does that answer your question at all? I, mean, I feel like it does. I love it. I love it. You totally are you totally get what this podcast is about. This is exactly how we do it. Just we're just gonna wander down different labyrinth ways, sometimes not even the same corridor at the same time, I'm sure. Oh, but cool. here's to that. <laughs> cheers. Um yeah. I don't want to forget what was the uh uh damn it, it slipped by because uh but um sorry about that. I had to make it. No, sorry to, sorry to. I had to make a little joke, and then I lost my train <laughs> of thought. No, that is very clear. And um, and uh, damn it! Oh my, people are going to roast me for this. Um, <laughs> Please don't roast him. For sorry, this. friends. He's this awesome. is you know the audio. I don't edit because people like that own natural vibe. Um, okay. At least that's what I tell myself. Yeah. Um, the the. Um, yeah, that oh that that passage in Hebrew that's yet yeah. still un unfigured outed. Yeah. Um is uh, is gonna is hopefully I'll put it on the screen here. It'll just yeah. um and hopefully folks can tear into it because I, I did. Um it was it's very interesting. And to uh, reference uh, another little uh, translation issue in the text, it's not necessarily impossible. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um but no, it's, is, it, it's, is it powerless or powerful that impossible was mistranslated as? Oh, it it was. Um, so it's in the end of Ptolemy's Tetrabiblios, and it means powerless. And the idea is it's uh, from 
astrologically uh, powerless because there's not light coming in. And, you know, his whole thing is starting out with let there be light, the effect of light on transforming different uh, different things. And I mean, and that part is clear, like from theorem one on. So then when he picks this weird word that is in, I think it's chapter 24 of the Tetra Biblios, it's like, it doesn't mean impossible. It means like, yeah, there's no light there because the light is blocked. So it's the, that, that source of light is powerless. Yeah, that, that was that was a very interesting video, uh, especially like how is some of the videos it's, and for people who don't know, it's a, almost a 50 video course getting towards it. I'm hoping you hit 50, if not more. <laughs> so I'm, I'm actually wrapping it up, fingers crossed, tomorrow. So I, I think I, um, but then what I hope is sometime to just go back through, because it did get too long. I mean, I was really optimistic when that started out and I'm like, we're going to have 24 classes. It's like, no. Nah, <laughs> So that goes actually to a, another point I was think, hoping for. Um, well, one of the one compliment is uh, you on some of the videos, you just did them twice. Yeah. Um, and I love that because I realized I'm watching the same thing again, but it's the same lecture given uh, differently, like no lectures ever given the same way twice. And and then you often had more information. I loved that it, it was like a, it just forced me to do lectures over again. And I just well, that's because you, a second. I, and I'm just saying, I loved that so much because it gave perspective on things I'd already heard and new information about ideas that I was curious about. What I thought was going to happen with that was I thought I'm going to get absolutely roasted with this. And you were one of the, the people, I guess, who was um, watching them because I didn't, I don't think I ever left one up for more than a day. Well, there was one I left up for two days. And I was like, oh no, I got to pull that out. Because a lot of times, you know, you're talking and you know what you think you've said, but you've said something totally different. And um, yeah, like I got uh, the elements in, in great initiations mixed up in one. That was the one I was most alarmed about because a bunch of people had, had seen it already. And um, I really expected to get roasted, but I also thought, God, I can't leave that out there. That's just wrong. And you're right. You never do something the same way twice. So I thank you for being so kind as to actually enjoy that. Whereas I, I, I really expected somebody to say down in the comments, why did you repost this thing? So anyway. No, I, I value whatever uh, professors have to say, especially on subjects that I I'm uh, I, that I love. Um, I did the math in grad school and figured out how much I was spending per hour of lecture. So if I miss the bus, I just yeah. pay for a cab because I'm like, <laughs> I give I can pay and not learn the information, or pay double and and get the information. And like I'm not going to get it from another person, right? It's very rare. You don't you can't just you don't get to just walk around talking to experts in early Christian liturgy, you know? So if you want yeah. to learn about that, you better make it to the class. Um, yeah, the, well. the the LVX theorem, in, uh -huh. in, in, I mean, I'm still in denial that that one's kind of true. <laughs> like, it's, and, I'm, and it's a willful denial. I'm, I, I want it to be true so much, I'm going to resist it with all my might, just like the aliens that are flying around <laughs> in the sky, or whatever they are, who knows? Aliens are fun, come on. Balloons, or blimps, or or you know, floating buttons. I don't know what's floating around, but there's lots of things floating around in our skies. And uh, yeah, uh, the LVX formula and the letters, I mean, it makes sense that they're there, especially with the alchemical uh, connections that we're going to maybe <laughs> save just for a minute because they're so exciting. But the the idea of the hermetic idea of light, 
of, of light being a representation of noose or prima materia, um, mm -hmm. it makes sense that it would hold such a prominent place in Dee's understanding, given the, the literature and the material he's familiar with at that time. But again, to see that so starkly shown that these key Golden Dawn symbols and, and representative mm -hmm. gestures and shapes are so deeply embedded in in the monos hieroglyph it just it just seems unbelievable and 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 i would say uh, given that you 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 were inspired by the knowledge lectures it's very easy for for the casual listener observer to think okay well someone some someone read uh some gd knowledge lectures and then is 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 engaged in eisegesis with the monos hieroglyphica and is is just seeing what they want to see in the text because they've had this lovely experience in in the gd world but 50 hours of videos <laughs> plus an, over a decade of translating the thing and putting it out through getting it out through Ouroboros, which is, you know, the, to call them reputable is, I think, an understatement. Um, and oh. it, it's it's too phenomenal. And you've really right. If someone wanted to make these claims, they were the, some might say they require great evidence. And you've provided that in spades. Well, and well, I, could I, could I just think it's two things about LVX, because I I'm. I'm glad that that seems like an awesome thing but um here's what helps i mean it helps being a geek right and being on a university campus i have access to interlibrary loans i had access to early english books online and i had access to um years ago at the university of florida i ran into the propoidomata aphoristica which honestly like no one reads i i would expect if you're in his audience and you know this work wow because no one reads this thing so these are 120 aphorisms that d did that came out a couple years before then the year after that d has this compendious compendious table of hebrew kabbalah which is lost or something but History of science people who looked at this Propoidomata aphoristica, they're, um, and I'm thinking of Wayne, uh, Wayne Shoemaker did the translation, but J.L. Heilbrunn was one of the big names in the history of science. And he's like, well, this is looking at the force that light exerts upon, you know, cones of light. And he analyzed it in terms of conic sections. And that was one of the real jabs. And then because I'm on a university campus and we had like our, our union happy hour used to go out and one of the math professors was there and Nancy and I were sitting around at happy hour and we were talking about that theorem and drawing out the LVX. And he was like, oh, oh. You know, that's a lattice rectum. That's the most amazing mathematical transformation. Hats off to you, James Swenson. Thank you. And he showed that to us there. And so it was kind of the 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 opposite thing, like, you know, the beginner's mind thing. It's like, if you don't know this is supposed to be difficult and you look at it and it's like, well, what is this going to do with parabolas? Oh, that's the most famous transformation there is. Let me show you. And so there was there was that whole kind of fusion going on, too, which is, you know, and Nancy, I got to tell a little story on my translator, Nancy, if I could. Yeah, um, so Nancy is, has nothing to do with magical anything. She's a history of science person who is very good at Latin and very good at German. So before this, we translated um, Tuba Veneris, um, which, um, which we've since retranslated. But when we finished, um, she was like, Terry, did you know some people think this is an occult text? And I was like, how could you not? How, and but but it was that awesome. kind of thing. So so working with Nancy on this, one of the things that she would do that was just awesome was I would also think, well, I know what this is. Look, and she'd be like, 
no, that's the wrong case. It can't be that. So she kept me from jumping ahead because she was looking at it more of history of science and math perspective. And um, so anyway, but we had a good time. When I finished, I was kind of sad after all these years. So then I started this thing. Anyway. Yeah. Well, the, the what you, did they ask you to produce a video course for it? Or no, or, no you just thought what's next? Um, I, I actually, so I did, yeah. of course. Oh, thanks. Well, what what I thought I was going to do, okay, and I talked to, I mean, no less than Pat Zalewski, who was really kind in showing, because I wanted to make some connections between some of the things in later Enochian work, some of the things that some people in some G, GD orders do, and he pointed out some of that in his writing, and he was like, oh, you ought to write a book on this, which was, it didn't occur to me anyone would want one. I was like, oh, yeah, and then I realized that's going to take too long. And I've got other things I, I want to write. And, and we all, you know, I'm at the age where I feel what times wing chariot hurrying near or something. So it's like, I'd, I'd really like to do that someday, but I'd rather like to get it out there now. So um, a friend of mine sort of challenged me and said, well, why don't you just do YouTube videos? And I was like, oh, well, that'd be simpler. I mean, one of the only things we got out of COVID was the ability to, to do Zoom videos on PowerPoint. That's how I taught my last classes before I retired. So anyway. Yeah, well, it was interesting to see some of uh, your earlier videos talking on Dan Winter's channel, which is what an interesting guy he is. Um, and I've been, I've, He's been on the periphery of my awareness yeah. for a long time, but I don't even I don't know how to get into him. Let me put it that yeah. way. I'm sure there's a way, a, a channel. Yeah. I didn't. I, I anyway. But you've uh, you, you mentioned on a few yeah. of the videos I noticed uh, with him um, to not show them to your tenure committee. <laughs> yeah. How was that journey? Because there's a lot of <laughs> occultists who are either consider young ones considering academia or. Yeah. Uh, ones like me like stuck at some point in the process yeah well it depends on the country you're in all kinds of things right academia is a, is a lot more tolerant in ways and in ways uh in ways it isn't i mean i, th I think i know the comment you're talking about because that was when we were talking about Enochian and i was trying to keep my academic hat on which does not work around dan dan started talking about aliens and whatever and i was like oh shit he's in trouble um and um so anyway, how did that work? Well, so it's kind of funny how that worked. Okay, history on most academic campuses is a more conservative discipline than English languages and literature, which is what I was in. I was the chair of humanities at UW-Platteville, and we were philosophy, foreign languages, and, and English, basically. So wonderful. I, I, I kept my occult interests. Well, first of all, I didn't really... They weren't a central part of my life until I met Vincent, which is its its whole whole bizarre story. And then I tried to keep it in an academic framework. But um, oh yeah, there there you go. That's the Ophanic revelation. I uh, did the intro to that. But those are a lot of uh, a lot of his um, his complete Enochian handbook from a huge Enochian working that was at Sedona in 1994. Actually, my fantasy now is to have another one next fall in Sedona that I'm trying to put together. Who knows if that'll that'll come together. So anyway, I went along through things. I got tenure and there was a big fight in my department about what counted for your tenure file and what didn't count for your tenure file. And so the way they settled it um, 
academic departments are just dysfunctional. First of all, if you're not part of one, that's something the rest of you should know. They're just dysfunctional. I mean, you're with all these smart people and you may be there for 20 years. And so you, you learn interesting uh, ways to keep the peace. So the way we kept the peace was, well, once you get tenure, as long as you're publishing in a journal, it doesn't have to be in your area. And I was like, Yes, okay. So then I started publishing in the journal of the Western Mystery Tradition. And I don't know that anyone actually read my articles, actually. I know that when Nancy and I did our translation of Tuba Veneris, that um, she wasn't worried about it counting in their department because a translation of a text, it's like, yeah, well, I was in a language and literature department. So anyway, there wasn't really any issue there. Um, academically, the bigger issue that I had was um, in terms of family, actually, I mean, and that gets, I don't want to go into all the details, but basically I, I wound up in a, a divorce custody situation where the other party who, who oddly, I mean, we're, we're good friends now. We were in, you know, there's that magical thing of the only thing that binds you more than love is hate. I mean, we were having a hate fest and hurling stuff at one another in a really regrettable way. And so the idea was let out Terry's occult interest. So, you know, uh, gifts about witchcraft that Vincent had given my daughter became exhibit number whatever. And then UFO books became another. And I, I, I remember this delightful moment during the trial, which which I won, by the way, but uh, we had a very conservative judge, and I remember him banging the gavel and saying, I don't need to hear anything more in this court about UFOs. Half the country believes in UFOs. You have to show she was a bad mother. And I was like, oh, dude, thank you. Can I hug you? Oh, I guess I'd get contempt for hugging a judge, but anyway. That's amazing. So anyway. After all that drama, I just, I did get to a point of like, what I cared more about was harmony in my life and not upsetting my family members. And that, that's, that can be difficult enough given the spin people can put on things, but I didn't have any, any trouble in the academy after that. What I'd say is, too, if you're interested specifically in the work of, of someone like John D., I mean, the big Cambridge critics don't have a problem with it, and Cambridge is a pretty, pretty decent school, so just cite what the D scholars are writing about or Jennifer Rampling's uh, work if you want to bring something over this way. And you know, I'm sure, since you're in Canada, about that great uh, uh, kind of, of subsection um, in, is it in Waterloo, where the Society's Magic of People, or they have the academic uh, study of magic? It's it's Penn University of Pennsylvania. Yeah, I, out, I didn't know that they're based in Waterloo, though. Yeah, the, I mean, they're, well, the Society's Magic isn't, and the that academic study of magic uh, series isn't, but yeah. a large number of the people that started it are there. So, like, when we would go to the Medieval Studies Conference, which was my favorite academic conference because they're literally like, you want to do a paper on J.R.R. Tolkien? No one's going to say, like, um, he wasn't in the Middle Ages. They're like, oh, yes, he was a medieval scholar. We'll take papers on Tolkien. How about John D? Well, he drew on medieval magic. You, I mean, they'll, they'll let you talk about whatever you want. Yeah. So that's where Societus Magica had their biggest gathering. And I would say about half of them were the people there were from that university in Canada. So 
Very cool. I, I'm glad yeah. I found that out. I know the Society is Magica, but I had no idea it had a Canadian connection whatsoever. Um, yeah, huge one. Yeah, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, and I'm and and it's it's been interesting to watch over the last twenty five years the shift in what's acceptable as university courses. I mean, yeah. I believe you can get a degree in Taylor Swift now. Maybe that is a rumor. <laughs> if it's not true, it should be. I, I, I don't know. I'm just saying things stuff. But my friend uh, uh, in two thousand three or in four started teaching while he was doing his PhD, a course on demonology and rhetoric at the University of Florida. And yeah. the, the, all the main, all the tenured professors oh, and everyone yeah. were furious because he doubled his class size. He had to teach it twice, which yeah. you know, so they he made twice as much, I assume, of course, as well. Um, and had his classes two week two set classes packed out for that course, and then the other professors in the field could barely get a certain amount, you know. And yeah, so, well, Florida's not where you'd want to do that now. I mean, the people I know there have been run out by the government. changed, I guess. Yeah. But it's interesting uh, but, to see yeah. just how these things change and shift and 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 people are the are the driving force, right? We can actually right. make an impact in these schools if we if we want to. Oh, absolutely. Because really what it is, what it usually comes down to is personality conflicts. I mean, I taught back at the early aughts, of course, in the occult and Shakespeare. Oh, our Shakespearean was upset by that. He, you know, we did not have peace and until I promised, like, no, I'm not trying to take away your Shakespeare course. Your Shakespeare courses are wonderful. They're also doctrinaire, Stratfordian stuff, wonderful. But it was it was more of a personality conflict. I don't know that he cared about the occult. He cared about me getting the Shakespeare course, which I had rudely assigned to myself since I was department chair. So that ticked him off. I could see why it ticked him off. But so it's like sometimes you just pick your battles. But then no one wanted to pick a battle with me since I was one of the people who also by that time decided on tenure files and say, oh, you're publishing more than any of us, but we don't like what you're doing. It's like no one wanted to pick that fight either. So my point with this isn't like that I'm so clever or not so clever. It's just that you've got to look at the human dynamic of it and and people in academia can be really mean and self-serving and so you've got to find a way to step around it it's been a lot easier to do everything since i've retired and ironically like i really miss being in the classroom i went back part-time in the fall and i love being back in the classroom but i don't miss all the drama it just would get ridiculous well congratulations anyway. on the re on the retiring and, and also just on such a fascinating career and, and it's the fact that it's brought you to where you're at now and sharing all this stuff with us is just a, it's just a blessing and and while we're on the topic of Shakespeare shall we dive into Shakespeare <laughs> okay, okay. because if you Vincent, want, go ahead. Vincent had some thoughts on on Shakespeare and and it was interesting to recently read the woolly biography of D yeah. where he goes over he actually touched on those theories yeah. and pretty much dismissed them all um, it, he touched on them briefly mm -hmm. and dismissed them all except for uh, one, which wasn't, you know, a Dyer or a Garland theory. It was uh, mm -hmm. a different mellow high high house or high something I, I could. I, I, I don't. It's been a few years since I read Willie's book. I really like Willie's book. And I thought it was the most readable biography of, of D. Um, I mean, you could put on some of the plays as rituals like Midsummer Night's Dream. In fact, um, Alan and I watched people put that on as a ritual. It's it's and you can 
Um, I think it's the Merchant of Venice. You can you can map that out cabalistically. You can with Midsummer Night's Dream, and then what do you do with Prospero's book and things like that? So I mean, Shakespeare is real interesting magically. Yes, I'm sidestepping your Francis Garland question because that was a place where I did just decide, like, while I'm in the academy, I guess I'm going to shut up. I do think that Francis Garland and Dee's diary was likely. You can't prove that he wasn't. Shakespeare. Now, you can't prove very easily that a lot of people weren't Shakespeare because there are years missing for Shakespeare. It's just there's no place where Francis Garland appears and and you can find Shakespeare, but you can't find Shakespeare that often. So I think I'm going to um, take that on in uh, in fiction after I get a couple other projects done. Because, cool. yeah, that's, well, that would be that's, fun. that's what I think that's what I, I I could argue that for for a long time, but there I don't get much traction with it with academics. In fact, though the um, Edward Kelly wrote a poem that winds up in uh, the first English translation of Ripley's Compound of Alchemy in 1591, but then Ashmole um, re, reprints this poem. It's to um, G H. No, G.S. Gentleman, like Guillaume Shakespeare, which is something they do with it. And it all seems to me about creating a magical theater. But even with that, I know that people who even bother to speculate who that G.S. is come up with someone who I find totally improbable. But it's another whole thing. So I'll just just yeah. stick with, you know, the magic in Shakespeare and the occult in Shakespeare. And, and we can just believe that, you know, this guy who supposedly never... Never left England, but he knows all these things that a spy would know about Italy, about France. He seems to, even the one that he has set in Prague, which Dehore D and Kelly were, of course, um, people have used to say, well, that's the uh, Winter's Tale, where there's a comment about uh, the Bohemian coast. And they're like, well, see, he doesn't know anything about Bohemia. Until someone pointed out, well, actually, this shows he knows a lot about medieval Bohemia because it once did have a coast and no longer did at that time. And so you can you can do all sorts of things with that. But I think I'll I'll fight battles that are easier to win for a while. For sure. Um, the question, I guess, I've always thought that made sense is like if we. <laughs> I mean, we could phrase it in terms of D. If D and if if D didn't teach Shakespeare this stuff, who did? Where did yeah. Shakespeare learn what Shakespeare knew? And exactly. I know that I, recently there's been a big push to say that there was no sign of any historical person ever existing such as Shakespeare. Um, but that mm -hmm. you know, uh, some I I, I I listened to I, I I listened to some of the arguments, but then I promptly you know reading I was reading Woolly at the time, so it's like yeah. people were taking out newspaper articles because Shakespeare owed the money. Like that wasn't something you generally could do. With someone <laughs> who wasn't known, right? Like you're talking about that great court case, right? That there's a whole book just on that court case about the Shakespeare the renter. That one is that what you're talking about? I I just know the reference from reading Woolly. Um, oh, oh okay. Um, oh, it must be be another one. Well, so we could we could just go nuts with this in terms of everything you could do with Shakespeare and D and Kelly. And this is why there is this, you know, this is shifting in history and shifting rapidly, one hopes. But there is the idea that because like, look, I find that it was written down here. It must be true. It's like, no, it, it people write things down that aren't true. 
especially people who are in intelligence or who are working with double meanings, like the whole D being a 007 thing. You know, that came from uh, Richard Deacon, which was a pen name of a guy who is a buddy of Ian Fleming, the James Bond guy, right? Yeah. And so they're like, D's signature is 007. And, and I remember with that looking in, not and not just me and being like, no, there's no 007. So let's imagine, for example, that governments then, just like now, can manufacture an identity for you. Well, that explains a lot of things about Sir Edward Kelly. You have someone who's useful, who's compromised, and you offer them another identity. Well, are you going to send your other intelligencers or your couriers abroad? There's all these Garland brothers, and there's also a very famous painting, um, the it's a Durer painting, and it winds up in Prague, Festival of the Rose Garland. But if you go back in, in art history, there are Garland brothers that are people. Uh, this is proto-Rosicrucianism, okay? Yeah. But it is very, very much like Rosicrucianism. So their brother is like in some kind of initiatory group that shares a common philosophy. And so if you look in, in Dee's diary... There's all these Garland brothers. Well, when Edward Garland, who's probably Edward Dyer, says, you know, he arrives with Francis Garland, it's not like they're biological brothers or adopted brothers. They're brothers Gar Garland of, of some group that is committed to some principle that I would I would argue turns into Rosicrucianism. But anyway, so I, I, I had a fun time in the early aughts going through and writing my scandalous history of who is really who with D like and who gets married for color and what kids are you, are really the kids of some noble. You can have all kinds of fun with that with Shakespeare, too, because, you know, people have made much of Shakespeare's two marriages and all that. Well, what that kind of reeks of is somebody being married for color because some nobleman has gotten some woman pregnant. And then you can have all sorts of fun with like, what if that person is Edward Talbot? Why is Edward Kelly, he shows up as Edward Talbot, and then we assume that Edward Kelly is the same person. Well, then why was he writing down Edward Talbot? And Edward Talbot was from a, a very important noble family. So you don't want to just kind of lie and like, well, I think I will write down that this is Robert Kennedy or something. I mean, we don't really have the same kind of, of thing to pick and choose from now. But so how does Edward Talbot suddenly turn into Edward Kelly? So a friend of mine figured, okay, well, let's see. Let's look at all the things that this noble dude, Edward Talbot, does. Okay, suppose he's the one that gets this woman pregnant and this woman gets married off to Shakespeare. Okay, that matches there. Then we got to find something for Shakespeare to do. Okay, he'll be a courier and he's married this person for color. And you can do this with lots of people. Now, you can't prove any of it. What it does is make a sort of steamy novel where no one, you know, if you're not a noble, your kids aren't your own. But anyway... I do. Um, I I do think there hasn't been nearly enough novels written about uh, the things we love in this time period. So the esoteric <laughs> aspects of it. There's probably been way too many in Elizabethan uh, period novels, probably, yeah, but not not on the stuff that I would want to see. And there's been some, but I think there could be more, especially with the constant new information that we keep seeming to discover. Have you considered, for example? I always thought of Freemasonry as a later development, but now that I'm aware that the first Freemasonic call started in Scotland in the 1490s, if I'm, if I'm remembering. Yeah, I've, I've heard about that. Yeah, so, I don't know. Yeah. Like, 
I'm not saying that that D and Rosicrucianism came from Freemasonry at all, but Freemasonry and Rosicrucianism do have a relationship that developed mm -hmm. at some point, uh, if not in, in the inception. But it points to me to the existence of these kinds of organizations, which mm -hmm. is not news. And since it's not news to us, the question for me has always been like, which ones directly influenced uh, D, if any? And and then there's the whole rising up of the night school or around D's time as well that yeah. I'm not too sure how much he was involved in that. But if if you're aware of anything about D's the potential school. education, you, you mentioned that you don't know if we had a secret teacher, but there seems like there might have been. Uh, well, the night school is a good example. Yeah. Well, OK, so the, the person who I think. If, if you like fiction, who has fictionalized that the best is Deb Harkness, who is a leading D scholar. And so um, she has she has this whole setup in her All Souls trilogy where this uh, history professor is going over old manuscripts in the Bodleian and so on. And it's also a vampire uh, love story. And I get really, really tired of vampire love stories. But having said that, like the history is just awesome. In fact, I was moderating a, a John D. Yahoo group. This was back in the day. And and I'm like writing, reading this book and I'm like, wait a minute, she's putting in fiction here all the stuff I was going to put in an article. And we were having a great discussion about it. So look, look at her fictional account of the School of the Night and you'll get a, a really nice tapestry of that. And so yeah, D is involved. He's not um, central to it. Um, there's the best scholarly book on D is probably Glenn uh, Perry's Arch Conjurer of England. But the, the thing I'm waiting that, for it to arrive. Three month yeah. waiting list to get it shipped. Well, I'll tell you, it's it's wonderful all the way up to the point where the Enochian stuff starts. And I mean, Perry is not that interested in the monad. So, I mean, don't read it to understand the monad. But no, but it's but the early stuff with D, it's like apparently D was married three times. Apparently he was an unmarried Catholic, uh, a married Catholic priest. I mean, there's just fantastic stuff in there. But then you get to the the stuff in Prague with Kelly. And. It's like I when reading it, I thought, geez, I know what happened. This was awesome. Um, to a much lesser degree, the same thing, in my humble opinion. I mean, she's a much better scholar than I'll ever be. But the same thing happens uh, with Deb Harkness's fiction. It's like she's cranking along, and she gets to the stuff in Prague, and it's uh, it. Um, let's say it's it's not her best work, and she's a, a really good writer up to that point. She also doesn't like Kelly too much, and I I hear you said you've been to Kelly's Tower, so she does she does set Kelly in Kelly's Tower. She doesn't do the usual kind of historian thing of saying, well, we have no evidence that Kelly ever lived there, but of course it's fiction. She doesn't have to have evidence. Anyway, so well, what brought you to Kelly's Tower, by the way? Could I ask that? Yeah. Um, first of all, I will say the her, uh, Deb's novels sound, uh, Dr. Harkness's novels sound better than, uh, more interesting to me than the TV show, which my um, <laughs> sister did force me to watch, let's say once. I'll go with yeah. once. Um, I would never... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was, it was actually fun. I did enjoy it, sort of, but I was disappointed by, um, you know, the Elizabethan stuff and like. Yeah, well, the stuff in Prague was. So all of that is like taking place in Prague Castle, which since you've been there, I mean, what an crazy, incredible place. But I guess they can't film that. So they stick this out in some hunting shed or something that makes no sense anyway.
Yeah, first time I went to Kelly's Tower, and we're talking about the, uh, you know, above the Calixer Cafe, that's the bar that's there now. Um, I don't yeah. think it was there when I first went in 2007 or six. I was just wrapping up. Um, I had just started my doctoral program with Nicholas Goodrick Clark, um, and yeah. he had just uh, finished his transition over to Exeter because when I signed on with him, he was at Lampeter in Wales still. Um, and I met him at the ASE in East Lansing, Michigan in 2003. So I was really gearing up for that and uh, trying to figure out if I could go full time or part time funding, all of that sort of thing. Don't worry, it all fell apart in the recession and, and then he died. So I oh. didn't get to. That's yeah, it's been a rough one. Um, but I did that first time go to Kelly's Tower and saw the alchem. I saw I found it because of the alchemical museum aspect. And, oh yeah, and and they were advertising that in Prague, so that's how I went to there the first time. I I would go. I you know I spent the day there and then at some of the other alchemical exhibits around Prague the first time. And then I didn't get to go back until twenty nineteen, and um, when I was there, and so I I was very well aware that. Um, but again, I really look forward to you filling in some of the gaps on this since it's kind of Vincent's baby, right? That play. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I oh, didn't know that yeah. even when I was there um, and working with the staff there to put on a series of lectures, including an all night ritual I did in the basement. Um, oh, and, you got you did. Oh, I would love oh, to yeah. about that. So we couldn't we couldn't do something in the basement. And in that time, was it in 2019 or 2007? 2019. Yeah. February 2019. Oh, awesome. So there was supposed, I mean, the the people who had been there when Vincent was there, um, and the person who tells this story uh, the best is a guy named Zach, who actually I tell some of Zach's stories, and uh, Vincent had a book on Kelly. It's this, The Alchemical Enigma. Yeah, but, but you're going to get that for years. And there, oh, <laughs> yeah. And so um, <laughs> so there, they were sure there was something in the basement, um, along with it being a crypt and a wine cellar and all of that, and that basement is wild. I mean, you could fit I, I an entire Golden Dawn temple in there, an entire yeah. vault, and then yeah. have still that same. You still have twice as much space left. Of, of you could do, you could do amazing retreats there. And they actually uh, were very kind to me and rented me the facilities for free. Yeah. Well, that, um, they, um, they they double booked my me theater. actually in the theater, and that's why they gave me yeah. the basement free because they double booked oh. me in the theater. So I had to do my lectures in the restaurant, and that was a hassle. Anyway, they're they're wonderful people, and I recommend people go do events there as much as they can because it's Prague, it's beautiful, and it's affordable. Yeah, exactly, and it's it's. Uh, I mean, they were um, they were going to let us. We wanted to sleep in the attic because Vincent was sure that that was where Kelly's Enochian Temple was, and I I think he was right for a variety of kind of kind of wild reasons so we wanted to spend the night in there but it uh that never came to pass we we had to go but we did the year after vincent uh died i got to do a an a pretty major enochian ritual in the tower and the way we worked that then was that at that time there was a restaurant that you could pay extra and they would have like these romantic dinners and you could eat up in the tower so um vincent's um fiance elishka um, found out about this because she's a, uh, from Prague. And so we, so she booked it. So they came and served us this romantic dinner. But then the idea was you could stay there as long as now. I thought we didn't particularly need to hide what we were doing, but then I'm not from Prague and she had, <laughs> she was. So, but I, I'm, I'm, 
sure that some things were done in that tower because it's just it's on such an energy point. And what Vincent thought was, if you know, when you're up in the tower, you look down and there's this whole sloped area and there's kind of a parabolic energy flow through there. And it hits. If you're projecting. It runs through the tower and then you can kind of hit the focus point of the parabola below. So that was his whole theory about it. But boy, it was it was one of the like the rushes of my life doing Enochian up there. But wow. so how did things go in that in the I, I stepped on your story. I no, not really. It's I, I love it. It's it's so it's so cool to hear this. Um, I mean, they had the museum part that they've mm -hmm. set up to look sort of like his thing. And they have D there and they tell you D worked there with him. But I don't think that was true. Right. No. no. no um, and of course, I, I sort of got a little uh, uh, infamy out of commenting in my early reviews of that in my early stage of the podcast and a bit before that, I noticed that in the setup there, they had a little garden, but the only thing yeah. growing in the garden, uh, in the, in the setup, do you know what it was? No, but I pot probably it's mushrooms. The it's only really? thing blowing, set, gr growing in the garden. I asked the tour guide, this young, uh, a little blonde girl who knew a lot about the place. Actually. Um, she had a surprisingly good knowledge of, of things. Yeah. And she said that was their garden so that they could, um have food to eat while they were doing their work up here i'm like and i was like okay that's the first thing she said that sounds kind of daft to me mm -hmm. um the idea that like they need food like the stairwell is it's decent it's a decent stairwell you it wouldn't want to go up and down it yeah. non-stop but it's not anything crazy especially yeah. if you've ever lived in a top floor of a berlin apartment building like yeah <laughs> those stairs <laughs> kill you um and no i, and I was like yeah, they don't need a garden to eat, right? They have servants. They have people who bring yeah. them food. And if if and if it is a garden to eat, why in your diorama did you do you have only mushrooms? Yeah, that someone no did something there, and so well, that made me it, speculate on D Kelly and entheogens, and of course, um, yeah. Well, whole, that's what I would speculate on that Kelly was, a, and that led yeah, me to uh, uh, to some comments that my friend Chris Bennett did in his work Libra four twenty recently. And he directed me to the work of his buddy, P.D. Newman, who then mm -hmm. a couple years later put out Angels in Vermilion and explores mm -hmm. the data is there, but it can, can be yeah. hard to isolate the key data that P.D. Newman is presenting. Both him and Chris Bennett are very clear about the fact that as research on psychedelia and history, they're mm -hmm. not academic researchers. They're trying to just gather data and present it so that people can explore it very much sort of in the journalistic approach that Graham Hancock allegedly takes yeah just like i yeah. i can't vet all of this but here it is yeah there's a lot yeah. of published information please vet it and of course the response is most people just laugh at these folks but what they're doing i think is incredibly valuable because they're just saying here's information no one's considering what do you think if and most of the and and i think that's right. the question that we have with d and kelly when it comes to drugs a word that only appears once in their diary mm -hmm. entries um and is referenced and made much ado about um, mm -hmm. by people like my friends, Chris Bennett and P.D. Yeah. Newman. I will say, though, I was saving this for my book. I will yeah. say, my dear friends, Newman and Bennett, one thing you didn't notice about the occurrence of drugs in Dee's diary that I wish they had noticed, and saying it to yeah. you just as good about, as, as revealing it in my, my yeah. upcoming book, you didn't notice, brothers, if you had looked at the key source material, you would have noticed not only is that reference there, but it happened on April 20th. Oh, <laughs> Well, so how cool is that? And a reminder that if you go to your source documents, you may get to make marijuana jokes even better. 
Oh, you can. Well, I'll throw something out there since they were researching it, and I don't want to follow this anymore. But I, I ran across something about uh, hemp traffic in that time. You know where it came from was Hungary, and then you run into that sort of uh, the batteries and all that gets very creepy. But these supposedly went to Hungary, but no one can show when. Now, I, I, I have no reason to think that uh, D was anything uh, but rectitudinous. But I have no, you know, it's like, why are you going to write things down? Is somebody going to write down in a place where the, there is something they shouldn't be doing that they're doing it? I mean, of course not. That's just totally absurd. Now, um, Vincent, who since he is is deceased, I can say, uh, took uh, really enjoyed the liberal attitude towards marijuana in, in Prague. And he was sure that in that uh time period that there was uh let's say that there that there was traffic from north africa through hungary into prague but there is another reason in that time period where it's not going to get written down and that's because you're you're crossing religious lines i mean there's ongoing fights between the holy roman empire and the ottoman turks so of course no one is going to write this kind of, of thing down or or they may hedge at it. But then you have all the things in Dee's diary where you've got the still going and Kelly is just kind of, it appears he's getting kind of tanked off of the, the spirits of the wine. And that's where you get some of the things that it's not in, in the one thing that I wrote two articles on because I was just so fascinated by what was going on there where, um, and it's leading up to their infamous wife swapping thing. But, Anyway, Dee and Kelly are not sitting at the scrying stone, and Kelly is asking questions, receiving answers, transmitting it to Dee. No, what is happening is he's been in the distillery with the spirits of wine, sees this guy, ben. spirit of Ben, and and you know, and comes back and tells Dee. And rather than Dee saying something like, we need to sober you up, buddy, Dee listens and the whole thing just starts spiraling. Yeah, you know the part that I'm talking about. Oh, I love he, it. It's, it's, it's a fascinating section, and it, it's where a lot of things turn, right in that section. Anyway, yeah, the but spirit, I digress. The little spirit of Ben, I just like to imagine yeah. this little gnomish guy. <laughs> but, you know, and Ben is an interesting word. It's a, yeah. it's such a uh, key word in Hebrew. Um, right. And, and therefore, you know, Islam as well and stuff, but just, but, but it's also such a, that sounds like such a colloquial name. It seems like the least magical name ever, despite being, <laughs> you know, an abbreviation of a tribe of Israel, yeah. right? But just so wild. It's, it reminds me of like one of my favorite Kelly stories is when he's trying to get the manuscript to show to the Jesuits who, because he's really falling mm -hmm. in love with the Jesuits, which is what leads me to think he wasn't really a Catholic priest before he met D, um, it, you know, if at all, though I, I, Again, I'm not the expert, but, you know, uh, he really fell in love with the Jesuits uh, in, in Poland and then still more further in Prague, it seems, and wanted to show them the page. And D had to lock him mm -hmm. in the room or he locked D in the room to try and get the pages to show the Des Jesuit yeah. diary. But then D then the servants stop him and get D out of his locked room. And and D says to Kelly, let's talk to ask the spirits if you should do that. And Kelly scries with the spirits and he's like, no, they won't let me, which is. So wild because most so you people are so committed to the idea that Kelly was making this all up. It's well, like, or that <laughs> D always tells the truth. I mean, do we really know that that, that right, happened? Course. Because the whole backdrop in Poland, there is so much, and this is actually something 
that that I've been working on with with some other things for quite a while. And in uh, in Vincent's book on Kelly, all right, Vincent died not having footnoted his book, which leaned a lot on many sources. And so I had went through and, and footnoted it. And at a certain time, I thought, well, I'm just going to write about this separately some other time. So in Poland, my point is that there are academic articles you can find looking about what in terms of intelligence would they be doing going to Poland and why, first of all. Second, that there is a Slavonic Ina in one of the uh, Jagellian libraries in a place they were. So that's something they'd be doing. But wait, there's there's more. They're, they're staying in places where their contact is Philip Sidney, the famous Elizabethan courtier who has been there on a trip before because, you know, wealthy young men are supposed to go on these trips. So they're staying in those places. And who else is involved there that is uh, affiliated with the Jesuits and winds up having a problem with them? Francesco Pucci, who then reappears later and seems to cause them nothing but but. So when I go through that, I, it's like there's something else going on there. It's like there's another scene. And and I apologize, first of all, to, to anyone listening that we're going into these like real minutia of Dee's diary. But there's another place where like, these books are totally destroyed and then they reappear in the fireplace, you know, and it's like, it sounds oh. like they, they faked burn them for the nuncio, right? Yeah. They, that's, yeah. that's yeah. So, and, and pretended to burn the powder too, the philosopher's stone. Yeah. Which is another good question, which is like, where does Kelly get that power of it powder? If it really exists, because I think it did exist. The main story is from that grave that they scried that there was treasure yeah. at. Right. But PD Newman, that's what his whole book is about. That, that trip basically yeah and who oh, and, really oh, I yeah gotta get that. yeah you it's 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 great it's it's challenging to read some of the ways he puts the data together i found uh but i love you mm -hmm. brother out there and uh thank you for doing the the heavy lifting on that because it's going to make it a lot easier for people to now sort through the information and, and uh and suss it out and see what what he looks at who was making the philosopher's stone at that mm -hmm. time and afterward where they learned that kind of process how they might have learned it and he points to the fact that afterwards it was dmt was being used as the philosopher's stone for a long period oh. of time so mm -hmm. we know that from the memphis misriam cagliostro rites of masonry which was then echoed in the russian rites they would give a a, a red stone with a white mm -hmm. inhibitor maoi inhibitor and mm -hmm. to the candidate going into the third you know, I don't want to give stuff away. Yeah, no, I, no, I've I'm not been through that initially. I'm not a master mason, so yeah. technically I'm not giving yeah. anything away. But like giving yeah. them the DMT ayahuasca yeah. style with an inhibitor orally to go into that initiation. And uh, so if they were doing that not long after, his, that's his argument. I believe I'm not, I'm, I'm butchering it, but P.D. Newman's argument is this DMT was considered the philosopher's stone by many, many, many people mm -hmm. for several hundred years maybe mm -hmm. it was by d and kelly as well that's that's such a reduction to the absurd of his argument and his data i encourage people to go check out angels in vermilion and i can't wait till you read that and see what you think oh, well the thing is so so the the text d was drawing on that are from this my this greco egyptian fusion that is the time period like just in terms of hermeticism i most love i mean they're talking about visions all the time i mean mm. all the time and and i'm not saying this as you know like go out and have a trip or something or or but no um the vision of zosimus of alchemical transformation isn't about turning lead into gold it's about fusion 
fusing with divine consciousness, which, as you know, that's what I see as the main motion in the, the last few theorems in the Monus Hieroglyphica. It's not turning lead into gold. And also something that gets that I think would be a kind of, of smoking gun and would be there if we were talking about physical alchemy is which kind of physical alchemy has, as I'm sure you know, there are people in the International Alchemy Guild now, like, uh, you know, Paul Harris, who he, uh, um, he's a person I've talked to the most uh, about this. But, you know, there are people who can make the plant stone, if you're talking about making the stone in the plant kingdom. Um, if you're doing lead into gold, that's the mineral stone. So if you're going to consider the Monus Hieroglyphica any kind of physical alchemy, which as you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not interpreting it that way, but you could interpret it if you wanted to as, a, and I, I forget the person who writes on this, but as golem making, as, you know, in the animal yeah. kingdom. And at least if you're talking about extending life or something, well, that, that, would make more sense than you're creating a golem really than and bringing it to life. But yeah. no one even seems to get into that discussion. Like what kind of alchemy are we talking about? And then when you get into the Enochian work, well, when they're told what the great table of earth contains, they're told it contains formal alchemical transmutation. So like, what kind are you talking about? I, I think, if you're in that kind and you're claiming, as as Kelly claimed to do and has was witnessed by a lot of, of people, not just uh, D, to be turning something into silver or gold, you've got another problem, which is you're going to get locked up and people are going to say, OK, make it for me now, which is, you know, not optimal. Yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. Kelly well, uh, in and out in prison big time over that with uh, rudolph right whether either because mm -hmm. he didn't want to give him the secret or didn't have it uh yeah whatever you want to believe i suppose but it's interesting uh, that in the woolly biography he makes it very mm -hmm. clear kelly didn't die well actually I, I mean i guess can't make it very clear but it seems like kelly left bohemia um eventually and continued down south with his family according to woolly but I kind of, I like I like the version. I think it was you mentioned of him losing. Was it you that mentioned him losing both his legs eventually? Um, people, I I mean uh, I I might have. I don't we don't know. know. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, he breaks his legs allegedly loses one of his legs and then trips and falls and and whether Kelly lost both his legs and died in Prague or or escaped down oh, south he, for a few more years. I went I mean, I went to where I think he died and where I think Thomas Kelly, who I think Thomas Kelly winds up back in England, but in most, uh, that's where he was imprisoned. They have a whole Edward Kelly museum there. They've got an Edward Kelly statue. I got my picture taken with the Edward Kelly statue and all that kind of stuff. But um, I mean, and I, I went and looked at um, the history of the Kelly family after Kelly dies. And I think he, it's, I think it's very clear that he dies in in most but i mean okay. i made um the other thing is then you know you have the whole bit of kelly's family and how do they get there and who are they anyway because there are uh some manuscripts ch Justin finds in the british library a couple generations ago where there there are references to d and kelly and their wives but and their families but that seems to have been taken out of the rest of the diary because what you get the rest of the time is this bit of well of d and his family and kelly and his wife 
um, and Thomas Kelly, his brother. So um, why, why doesn't D mention that um, Kelly's kids are around? And that's been pretty conclusively shown, like the guy Hammond who shows up in D's diary, um, Kelly's stepdaughter is writing to him and he refer and she refers to Hammond as someone who was her Latin tutor, which is kind of fascinating. But I mean, uh, Elizabeth uh, Weston and her brother are never ever mentioned by Dee, even though her letters refer to Dee and refer to uh, Dyer and people like that. Not, not in great length, but enough to know, I mean, that's how they figured out that's who that person was. Wow. So that's all interesting. Do you have uh, any ideas why he omitted such stuff? I I just have I just have my kind of tabloid level theories about it. I would say that um part of So, if I were to write a novel about it, what I would do is make um Kelly's wife one of these marriages for color of someone like, I don't know, a Robert Devereaux or someone like that who, and these kids, kids that are being taken along. Because if you go look at Michael Wilding, who is from the same place in England that Kelly allegedly was, um, uh, went and looked at all the church roles there. Um, and then he went, uh, there's a record in Chipping Norton where uh, supposedly Kelly's wife was from. And they're, the, they're, they're real old records, but they're old and out of place records, if that makes sense. It's like, it's not like someone put a new record in there, but it is like the record from long ago is kind of sketchy looking. So, so I think they're not referred to because there are some illegitimate kids of, of someone and they need to be gotten out of there. If like their father is um, a Protestant, and the mother is Catholic, well, that's a problem. And Joan Kelly herself is this really fascinating person if you go and look at stuff in the archives, because unlike any other supposedly English person in that time period who is over there, she has, she's writing in Czech. Like hmm. Czech's not, an, as you know, it's not an easy language to write in. So one could say, oh, well, this is by the time after Kelly died, well, she's learned Czech. Well, first of all, most of the records are in Latin, and if they're not in Latin, they're in German. So, yeah, she could have learned Czech, and she probably would have learned Czech, but the only reason I could see that she would be writing in Czech is if that's a language she's kind of comfortable with. And it, But anyway, it, that's, that's just a speculation far afield, but um, I do know that an interesting thing happened since I traced those those two kids the most that I could, probably because I needed a better hobby. But okay, so the son winds up first being put in a, uh, a like a Catholic boarding school when he's like kindergarten age. And it's the same one associated with a father Campion, who is a priest who is drawn and quartered in England. So, but he's in this Catholic uh, school. Hmm. Um, then later on, he gets sent to, I think, Wittenberg, which I think that's the right place. It plays it, it plays a prominent part in uh, Hamlet. Um, but then, um, so Elizabeth Weston, when people figure out that her uh, poetry is that that she's the step that this poet is the stepdaughter of Kelly, then what they um, 
there there were a couple very wonderful and well-meaning articles where they're like, well, see all the freedom that this person had because she was in a Catholic country because they didn't know anything else that had happened. Well, yeah, but then you find that she is basically marrying someone who appears to be an intelligencer for one of the um, big Protestant houses that is in what's now Germany, and they're super Protestant. So it's like, well, no, it's kind of more interesting that she's marrying this Protestant dude in frog actually but so the whole thing it's the one thing that i'm certain of is something else is going on like the cover story is just a cover story anyway and it seems like there's many cover stories in these fellows lives so so we're not going to get bored anytime soon at least um i mean the mysteries keep unfolding it was clay holden that discovered speaking of the golem and the versus moot uh truth versus death issue i mean the Y15, Y14 in yeah, awesome. is one yeah. of my favorite things. Uh, it's probably yeah. one of most Inokian magicians' favorite things. And most people are going like, what are they talking about now? Even my astute audience, some of them aren't going to know what we're talking about. But Oh, look, look, yeah, that's a good thing to look up. Well, with the Enochian work you go through and you realize that whatever one thinks about it, and I mean, I plan to keep working on that stuff till I die, really. But um it's you you take things on the at surface value at your peril and so when you get things like which was this was quite popular about 10 years ago to look at the holy table and then there's a copy as you i'm sure you know in truth and the true and faithful relationship merrick casabon still had access to the real holy table so supposedly that picture of the holy table that you get there is actually d's holy table And then someone noticed, well, the letters don't match up with the diary. So there were all these, well, it was a printer's error. Well, first of all, like making a printer's error like that is way more complicated than a printer's error would be. I mean, you'd have to mirror things perfect. So, I mean, the the ensigns would be reversed. Oh, the whole, well, they're, they're. I think the argument was made by people who hadn't set type because we were, you know, out of that era where people would work with type. But the thing is, if you go back and look in the diaries, D is saying, or the angels are supposedly saying this to D. It's one of the places where it looks like it wasn't an exact scrying session. It's written down afterwards, but they're saying, consider the transposition of letters. So you go through and you transpose the letters. And then you look at this drawing of the holy table and you figure maybe you should face east. So if you face east and then you see why is this reversed? And anyway, if you follow the instructions there and you follow it the way a ceremonialist might with and by that, I only mean that, like, you stand behind an altar and face east. It's like that's all you got to keep in mind and then follow what's going on there. It matches perfectly. It just doesn't match a reading that where someone doesn't really engage and, and, and figure out all, you know, various things. The same thing with the, the way that you, um, and this is a thing actually of the work of Alan in mind that I'm the proudest of, which is how you letter the great table of earth. And now a word from our sponsors. 
While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or six dollars a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot. Plus, you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. I mean, you're not going to find a place in the spirit diaries where you get it correctly lettered. And so that leads, as you know, to all kinds of problems like multiple lettered squares and so on. But if you look at the one manuscript that is kind of like Dee's grimoire, you get um, a circular drawing and then, then grids in a row. And so if you let the governors govern the squares, and so if there's a conflict between the letter, you figure, oh, well, the Enochian governor governs the square, so we'll get rid of this letter and put the governor in. Then not only does the whole thing match, it matches in, I mean, an eerie way where you're like, either they're having, or probably both of these, they're having some serious help on another level. And this is influenced by the structure of these men's mind that know the Monus Hieroglyphica, because what you get is the outside matching the inside. I mean, it's it's wild. And it matches energetically what we've experienced working with it once you set up a temple space that way. It just hums, and the outside rotates through the inside. Vincent would claim uh, that that was a hypercube, and that seems to make, well, why would that be a hypercube? Well, think of Theorem 20 and the monad. I don't think they would have called it a hypercube, but that's the the, the structure that that is kind of the holy grail of his mystical system. You set up this cubic space and the outside of it connects to the inside and it rotates through the middle and then it just keeps running. It's really cool. Anyway, but I digress again. No, absolutely. Uh, your paper with Alan is what led us to make the decisions for our new table that we made. And I don't know if we've used all the letter substitutions that you that you made, but we mainly we were looking at the directionality, of course. Um, and I liked that the argument, oh, I think not only did I think it was right, but it 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 meant it was clockwise, which instead of counterclockwise, <laughs> which of course made me happy. But I, yeah. again, I would have gone the other way if I was convinced by the other argument. And um then, then, of course, Joseph Peterson came out with his new revised diagram, which confirmed exactly what a lot of us were doing. And so that was really yeah. nice to see. It's always good. That was a, wouldn't have changed anything if he had thought we were wrong, but it was nice to see that he agreed with your research, um, uh, for, at least for the most part, right? With the no, new If you've seen the new design he put out, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, um, it, but it's been really, really nice. And I think we're both lucky in this in that, you know, in a certain way, it's a crappy era to live in. But if you're working on this stuff, I mean, you have the advantage of easy access to stuff. Like, I mean, I've got my my client here. Okay, I I, I was so happy when that came out. And there's, <laughs> yeah, it also is is great, I guess, for uh. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Sorry, I was muted. Oh, that's so. I mean. You can you can you can fix things more quickly. I mean, I remember before Klein came out uh, uh, going and I looked in the British Museum and then remember the magical review and it was such a big deal that Ian Rons was putting all of those the, all of those manuscripts out there. But it was still nothing like I mean all the cross referencing that goes on in Klein's. By the way, by the way, Kevin Klein, if you're out there, I've been trying to find out who you are for many years now. I'm one of your biggest fans. Um, 
please get a hold of me. I, I, you're one of my, uh, like I said, I'm one of your biggest fans. Do no you one knows know who he is, eh? Seven, huh? No one knows no, who I, this guy is? No, I mean, I have various theories of who I think it is because I wonder if this is this guy's real name. I, what I, but, but, you know, I don't, I don't want to diss someone if 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 Kevin Klein is a real person and out there because there has there is really good work that comes out and no one sees. By the way, the the thing that we did in the Monad with LVX, you know who else? Um, well, that was Vincent's idea. I'm thinking uh, of something else. I'm sorry, but Agnes Klein did a German translation of the Monad in. 1980 which is just awesome and i mean i think that probably was her real name i tried to find her i don't even know if she's still alive but i would have loved to have known um how she found out some of this stuff she must have gone and looked at the codex marcianus because she was the one that found out that that d had a copy of it that d had left it in castle and that goethe had found it and that sent me on this whole track of looking at the works of zosimus or looking at isis the prophetess to her son horus and that, this is that to me one of the most important aspects of of the course you presented and the research you've done is i don't even know how to approach this because i want to approach it in so many ways all at the same time but the codex marcianus clearly was d's secret text he didn't even yeah. list it in his diary and how much of it not being listed in his diary might have led to D, us believing that D had no in, interest or knowledge uh, in the history of alchemy somehow or spiritual alchemy. And that this, let me perhaps phrase it, frame it this way. I, oh, I've never had, a spiritual alchemy has never been on a, a hill I was, I was willing, needed to die on or anything like that. It's not a pack of dillos for me, but, but I grew mm -hmm. up with it. I was, grew up in a Maharishi yogic family into oh, Walder yeah. school and into Golden Dawn and into, and next thing you know, I was in seminary. So it's like, this is the world yeah. I grew up in. And, and surely while I was doing my master's, uh, the language of mystical Christianity, which of still cause it has its roots in and we all know what but that started to replace some of the more new ageism of alchemical language that i grew up knowing and it's been widely uh, attacked as being just a fabrication of the new age or perhaps at best um some kind of paracelsian pseudo terminology but with no roots prior no. to that but this is like the fusion it's the yeah. most cool fusion it's like fuse the the Greek learning with the Egyptian learning, you know, there's also this bit about like, well, why do ceremonial magicians do all this Egyptian stuff? Because clearly the Judeo-Christian tradition has no connection to Egypt. It's like, excuse me? Yeah. Like, like did you read your own tradition? <laughs> and and it, 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 that's one of my pet peeves. But then you get this fusion before the Library of Alexandria where you get multi different types of pagan ideas with greco-roman ideas and and then the kind of well yeah you can be jewish and christian and pagan too and then you can uh, you know fuse with gold just like raw every day i mean here the sun here's raw rises in the dawn and sets in the evening goes through the underworld and there is no real evidence they're saying now and here I'm referring to uh, the work of Shannon Grimes in English, but then there are a lot of people writing on this in French, where like there is no evidence that turning lead into gold is even a thing to the to the Greco-Egyptians. Now the Egyptians have a lot of gold, like King Tut's the door to his tomb is was 
well, I don't know if it was a door, but anyway, there's a bunch of gold in there. And I, but it's coloring things gold and the house of gold down in Dindera, where the famous Zodiac is, the house of gold isn't made of gold, but stuff colored gold. And as you know, like there are all these processes for like taking a, a copper lead alloy and making it look silver or making it look gold, but nobody's saying it is gold. The idea is for you to become gold like Ra, the sun, and, and merge with that divine consciousness, which then gets overlaid directly into a Christ consciousness, or, um, which I know even saying that sounds like a new agey term, but that's exactly what's going on there. And it's it's really fascinating. So what I like to think of with decopying that Codex Marcianus is, first of all, like, Guy had to be seriously motivated to copy a whole text in ancient Greek, even though he was an ancient Greek scholar. But then can you imagine, like, even to someone like D, this is mind-blowing stuff. I mean, it's it's well, crazy stuff. Isis talking to angels. Uh, yeah. creating Christ or Osiris as her husband, but by re-putting mm -hmm. the ball, so much is going yeah. on with that. And I, again, I don't, I don't want you to necessarily to, to, uh, to explain it at all in any way to the audience here listening to this later oh, on, because you've already done this and I want <laughs> to encourage people to, to go through the entire course that you've created as most of my oh, friends okay. currently oh. are, if they want to stay my friends for long. Oh, <laughs> So but, there's but, a whole, but we're just discover, discovering this stuff. But like apparently that text, uh, Marie von Franz, a student of Young, was way into that Isis, the prophetess of Horus text. And to go back to my friend Vincent, he was the one that he kept writing about it to the point that I was snarky. And I, you know, Vincent's dead now. So if he's listening, sorry about this, Vincent. But at one point, he kept referring to this text, but he had no good translation and his footnotes were horrible. And, you know, and I was a professor then and I was writing stuff with him. And he was cited on some freshman composition site in the US as like an example of poor citation or something like that. Oh my God. And I'm like, see, you can't do this anymore. That's and then, then I realized like how hard it is to, to know what's going on in there. I mean, it's, they're not, most of it's still not translated into English. So. Of the um, codex? Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Most of it, it's translated. There's a lot more of it translated into French. There's a little of it translated into German. Um, the one that's translated the most is uh, that the vision of Zosimus or on excellence on virtue, but like the, the one that I find of Zosimus, the most fascinating on the letter Omega where. Yeah. Like Adam is made of four elements and Jesus comes and visits Adam and helps him not be enslaved by the elements. I mean, it's 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 a it's a, it sounds exactly like what every Golden Dawn adept has been wishing we could find as a source for all of Mathers and Westcott's uh, creativity, shall we say? Yeah. But then where did they get that from? I mean, so I'll tell you one per a, a person who like historically, I don't even know what I think about this person, Arthur Edward Waite. I mean, he's a fascinating fascinating character. But when he's trying to explain the Turbo Philosophorum, which is not near as interesting anyway, but he's trying to explain this nature rejoices in nature, which, uh, quote, well, so somehow Wait knows to go to the Codex Marcianus because then he's yeah. explaining this. And, and, and I remember reading that and going like, how did he know to look at this? I mean, and... Uh Westcott must have yeah. talked about it 
something. Oh, I mean, I don't like, know. Did could Westcott read Greek? I don't. I don't know. Somebody knew something about it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Westcott knew Greek. I uh, even in the '90s when I was in doing a year abroad in high school in Vienna, all my teachers didn't know English in the '90s in Vienna, but they knew Greek. They all knew Greek and yeah. Russian and Latin. They had to. You have to speak four languages in Austria to be a teacher. None of them knew oh. English. So no. I think if, okay. if, if that laid in Europe, we for in North America, we're just we just don't have as many languages as those folks. Oh, absolutely. So we forget how how common it is for them to know those. But yeah, so th this text hasn't even been fully translated. So I hope the Internet people out there hear that and and realize they should get off TikTok and go learn Greek and get to translating some cool manuscripts for us. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be very, and now that I think of it, that is, that was in Westcott's era, that was, I mean, you know Latin, and if you were a good student, you'd, you'd study Greek, I think that's, it's, it, so I guess, of course, he would have known Greek, so, sorry, Westcott, anyway, um, anyway, um, I'm probably taking up too much of your time. No, not I, at all. I, I wanted to ask you a Kelly's Tower story, did you run into any ghosts there? Everyone I know who stayed there had wild ghost so stories. So I didn't. I didn't stay there. Um, I uh, was staying at an embassy. Um, I was staying at the Peruvian embassy, a big mansion. Um, wow. You know, it was great. It was a wonderful. I had a driver who could just stop in the middle of the street and because of his diplomatic plates and I could run in and do my photocopying and all of that. Um, that's a whole other story that's not appropriate Dude, I, for this I, podcast. I, I I, no, it's more anyway. interesting than the Kelly's than the than the no. Um, so I was <laughs> during during the the tour of the Alchemist Museum with my friend. I noticed mm -hmm. that there's the astronomical tower, right, with right. The shaped windows, mm -hmm. um, and there was a stairwell going up to it, and it was it was um, it was unlocked. And I asked the tour guide if I could go up there, and she says, "I've never seen that unlocked before. It's always been locked. I don't even know of any of." anyone who goes up there but if it's unlocked you of course you can go up and i thought this is far out okay oh, wow. so i grabbed my i thought well what if i go do like you know the 10th call of text up there and, and <laughs> see what happens and I'll, I'll bring i'll film it on my ipad and you can see that video on my yeah. youtube um not many people watched it or, or care which is fine but halfway through the call i had i uh i had got a jolt and it was yeah. like, you don't need that here. And I stumble, you can see it when it happens in the call, because I stumble over the words. And this is probably one of the, the, the things I know best in life. If there's anything I know very well, it's it's the the Olsenuth, Ols you know, um, call. Um, and 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 there, I, I, yeah, I had an experience. I looked out and meaning, I saw- Meaning, like, okay, if I could, shape. meaning like, you don't need to open the veil. If yeah, you, yeah. And I looked out and it just was like disembodied auras stretching <laughs> across the rooftops. And this one yeah. spirit said, telling me its name and saying, um, you can talk to us without without doing that here. Um, what are you here to do? And I said, well, I don't know. I'd like to do this. And they said, we can make that happen. And everything just fell into place. I went back up to Leipzig the next day to finish oh, wow. some work I was doing up there and then set up for two, the next 10 days, set up these lectures in Prague. I, I was going to do them down in in, in Vienna, my old stomping ground, and also hit up the Thoth Hermes podcast at the same time. But coincidentally, he got sick. The Thoth Rudolph got oh. sick, and Nick Farrell canceled our our coffee in Rome. So I didn't. I just stayed in Prague, and yeah. did this series of lectures and tons of magical things happened throughout. So you the were lectures. supposed to be there. I mean, it's 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 weird how many people. The people who have the most magical experiences in there, I'm convinced, are people who just randomly wind up there. And I mean, I could list off stories, but I I I I probably. Uh, 
talk long enough already, but no, no, no. People are expecting a long, as long a podcast as we can handle. They like, (laughs) like the format. Um, uh, hopefully we can do at least another half an hour if you have the time. No, that's, that was bigger. Vincent wound up there when he was in Prague by Zach. Um, just, uh, Vincent was giving his talk about Kelly's tower and doing tour guide kind of things, which was something he was able to pull off. And I don't know how as an American in Prague, he was able to pull that off, but he was really good at it. And then, um, Zach came out and was like, you need to move in here. And he was like, oh, I didn't, there was, so he did, but all, all kinds of, uh, I got lost in Prague um, once when I was, I was staying with a former girlfriend of Vincent's who was there and she was working. And so I went to, and I got really sick wandering around in Malastrana and I'm like, God, I got to go somewhere and sit down. So I wound up sitting in the courtyard there all afternoon. And when I got there, I mean, I knew where I was. I was like, oh, this is weird. Okay. I know where I'm at. I don't, I don't know how I got here. And I was calling, um, my friend and saying, I got Rodka, I'm in Kelly's tower. I don't know how I got here. Can you come get me? (laughs) It was, it was kind of wild. Anyway. um, Yeah. Stuff opens there. So another person we knew there kept, I I said, I was going to tell you the story of Vincent's Enochian lamp. Well, since he was doing lots of Enochian stuff there and you would have to have met him. He was, he's now, I really believe he had some of Kelly's memories. He's one of several people I have known who thought they were the reincarnation of Kelly. But I mean, I don't really think we have a very clear metaphysics of how we understand past lives in the West. I mean, to me, that's not a problem at all. But I mean, we'd walk, he'd do like he'd run into a wall and be like, oh, that wall didn't used to be there. He'd know exactly the place to go, even though he never learned Czech. Uh, And I mean, it, it was uncanny. So, so he's working on Enochian stuff in Kelly's tower and one person there kept, so the story goes, anyone who wants to is invited not to believe this. This person kept getting possessed by the ghost of Edward Dyer. Well, that was weird enough, but so that was the point of the whole uh, Enochian lamp was to set up a structure that, I mean, since you're supposed to do it in a Tiferetic space, but also once you get get that going, so the ghosts that say weren't welcome stayed out for a time with these Enochian lamps, which is kind of a, I don't know, kind of a fun thing. Then have you heard of the story of the play that he put on there or did not put on as it turned out? No, I didn't. But I also can tell you, I am definitely going to be making an Enochian lamp. I don't know what it will be look like, but <laughs> that is happening for sure. <laughs> it, it, it was it was a, a pretty cool thing. So so Vincent wrote a play about the end of Kelly's life and involving Kelly's dark lady, and this was all drawn from. A combi- well, it was drawn from a combination of historical and non-historical sources, but his it's uh, this was supposed to be put on in Kelly's Tower. And at that time, um, when this was happening, I was teaching in China, where I'm going again in a week, but Alan was back um, in the U.S. So they were putting this play on. I'd seen copies of it and, and so on. And they had a pretty good cast and everything. But one person Vincent was doing magic with, they were also trying to make what they called a time telephone. There was something where Vincent wanted to go back and change something Kelly had done or something like this. It's a, a long a long story and would require, what, more explanation than I feel comfortable giving, frankly. So 
So he called Alan, who was in Wisconsin in the United States, and they talked. And Vincent was like, hey, you got to come over here, you know, leave Uncle Sugar, da, 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 da. And I, I mean, we've been over there to see him several times. But they had a great conversation. And then suddenly Vincent got tired and was like, I got to go. Well, he sometime between then and the next morning died. The play was canceled. And so then, and of course, Kelly's ghost figured prominently about them. The story went from some of the people in the play that Edward Kelly's ghost was already upset by the play because in the play, Kelly forgives this woman and Kelly hadn't something like, I mean, it's sometime the, the play will be published somewhere and anyone interested can read it. But so then, and I swear, this is true, by the time that I was back, um, the year after Vincent died, 2015, you had to have a whole metaphysics, not just of past lives, but of ghosts. There's like, well, there's the ghost of Kelly who is pissed off about the play. There is the ghost of Kelly after Vincent died, who is guilty that he helped cause Vincent's death. And then there is some other Kelly that no one, ghost that no one can figure out. And it's just like, wow, I have never experienced anything like this in my life before. But, but Kelly's ghost was, you know, not uh, affected by the Enochian lamp, it seems. It only kept Dyer away and people like that. Then there were other stories about, like, they had an idea that that had been, before Dee and Kelly were there, a um, some kind of orphanage, because there were all these child ghosts at one time that were kind of alarming. And then there was supposedly a Westonia ghost who was supposedly, like, running around and like a kid or something. But... I mainly got there and encountered the Kelly ghost, and, and that was interesting. And then I encountered the Kelly ghost when we went to Most and made a promise which I haven't kept. And instead, for years, I thought, why did I make a promise to a ghost of Edward Kelly? Like, what was I thinking? Anyway, so quick spiel of, 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 of the ghost stories there. I love it. I love it. I'm sure the, the listeners will too. I haven't read Jenny and Donald Tyson's new book, uh, Spiritual Alchemy, which is all their scryings with Edward yeah. Kelly's ghosts. Have you looked at that yet? Because I'd be more interested yeah. in hearing someone like your opinion than mine, because you know more details about his life than me. So you might actually catch things that he's like, oh, holy crap. Well, I, I don't know what. So what I thought isn't provable in any way at all. Uh, so I don't, but I thought this doesn't sound like Edward Kelly. In fact, I thought it sounded like Vincent. I mean, the person's talking in pretty clear American English, which, but I mean, that can happen with, with, with scrying. I know at some point Tyson and uh, Vincent uh, knew each other. I don't know um, in, in what way I, I like the book. I just, I was, I was kind of taken by the kind the English he spoke, um, yeah, and there were um, theories yeah. on how the in, I mean consciousness communication's yeah. got to be a weird thing, right? Um, but well, there uh, is, although like I mean, the Edward Kelly ghost I encountered swore at people in Latin. He didn't really like to speak English, so yeah. Well, there's yeah. ghosts, and then there's ghosts, perhaps. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, mean, uh, I, I still, I still, I still tell people I don't believe in reincarnation, but really, I just don't believe in the simplified leapfrogging version that we have. Exactly. Or the 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 uh, you know the forms of 
karma used to keep people in their places in life, their stations that they're born into, all that stuff. I think we need to, people need people. I don't mind talking about these big ideas. It's great. But I think people do need to think about them a little bit more before they. Well, that's it. If you're thinking of basically like take just a few modern scientific ideas, think of the body as energy. Well, energy splits apart. It comes together. I mean, yeah, it's exactly it's that leapfrogging thing that just gets on my nerves. It's like I realized in the last in my last life, I would then, of course, someone is always someone famous anyway. But there is not ever the notion that this energy body that was this consciousness could have split into multiple consciousnesses or that they could like drop in at a particular time. I mean, I had a friend who uh, was certain at a certain time in her life that it seemed like she knew all kinds of things that she'd never learned before. And I mean, who knows what happened, but she was open to the idea of, well, maybe some other consciousness just dropped in and merged with mine. I mean, we don't, one of the things we don't talk very much about is the whole structure of consciousness. And that's like the most beautiful thing about humanity, I think, seriously, like, well, if you talk about fusing with divine consciousness, okay, great. Well, and, and, human consciousness break apart and come together and anyhow conversation for another time it's it's the the in your course the fact that like as i started to realize going through the the videos that what you were actually going to demonstrate is a is a complete line of transmission from the explicitly Spiritual alchemy of Zosimos, though God knows, uh, before I, I'm reading Grimes' book, uh, <laughs> right after I have it, I'm reading it yeah. right after I study glass making for the next few weeks. I need oh, to. Oh wow! I need to study glass <laughs> making in the form of, um, uh, it's not Chumbly. What's his name? Churton's new book on the yeah. early alchemists. So I'm reading oh, that, wow. and he and it's mostly about glass making, a lot yeah. about glass making and dyes. But I'm yeah. reading that. Then I'm going to read the Grimes. That way, I have some some awareness of what they yeah. were physically doing in their industry. As, mm-hmm. And then go into this spiritual interpretation that Grimes uh, asserts in her doctoral dissertation, Becoming Gold, okay. which people can get in Canada through Anathema Publishing. Shout out to Canada, Canada's yeah. own Anathema Publishing. Go get it there. Uh, it's cheaper on Amazon, but I shouldn't have said that. Oops. Um, oh, don't get, get get the one that's not. Don't don't. Yeah, support Anathema <laughs> and also uh, your book, Ophanic Revelation, that you uh, helped Vincent a bit with. Though it's mostly his work, as you said. That- oh, that's his work. I it's, it had an introduction. In fact, we got into an argument about that because if you read the introduction to that, we got into arguments a lot. We had a very dysfunctional, delightful friendship, and Alan and I both really miss him. He actually, he married the two of us, by the way. He introduced wow. us, he married us. Uh, but um, it was clear when I was working or hanging around him that he was a teacher and I was a student. And that was fine. I mean, it was like what a steep learning curve of the occult. I mean, it, it was intense and wonderful for a few really precious years. But so we got to this and we're, and we're writing the introduction. And he was upset at my slow progress, which I understand. I, I do things. I did things more slowly than he did. But then. We got to a certain point, and he is going off on this whole thing about Crowley. And I'm like, look, I don't think this is an introduction to Enochian. We don't need like half of this to be Crowley. And he basically was like, well, it's going to be there. You're booted from the project. I'm like, well, okay then. I mean, so you can see in that introduction, there's a definite point where the style changes. That's because I wrote the first part and he wrote the second part. So anyway. The cultists uh, are such famously easygoing people. 
Yeah, we yeah we get along with everyone. We never argue. That was the only you know the only time. Yeah, um, amazing. Um. But uh, I, I actually we had a point in around 2010 or 2011 um, where I just thought I'm never going to talk to this person again, and he probably thought the same about me. I mean, my dear husband was like the color of a white sheet of paper once after after one of our disagreements about. Uh, something that we were working on i actually have gotten a lot more mild-mannered i'm sort of ashamed to look back at those at the at those days in a certain way but um anyway um we were i i was never going to talk to him again and he was like never going to talk to me again and it's it's sort of like kids on a playground going like me and you're not my friend anymore yeah and so I am really glad that that didn't last and we got back in contact and we're on good terms before he unexpectedly died. I mean, I'm really grateful for that. Since we have touched so much on him and you've shared these like beautiful little memories of, of this fellow who I think the occult world due to the, 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 he only put out this book and his book on Kelly, as far as I know. And I haven't, yeah. and I've been trying to get his Kelly book for a couple of years, actually, because I heard about his book on Kelly before I heard about you. Um, uh -huh and couldn't get it and that's why i ended up doing a, i tried to promote him in a way uh vincent bridges by by yeah. doing a commentary on uh, some of the stuff from the the pamphlet i got in prague at the alchemist museum yeah there's a little mm -hmm. piece of his writing in there i'm like yeah. how come no i can't find anything out out about this guy hardly at all it seems um his books are hard to get um this one i just didn't i just didn't know what it was and the cover made me mm -hmm. think it was a bit too new agey for me but turns out it's it's wild and delightful and has the best exploration of the letters that i've ever seen and i thought maybe we could just quickly talk about uh, one aspect of the book mm -hmm. which is his study yeah. of the enochian letters and could you maybe just illuminate a, give us a bit of a, a an incentive for those who will buy this book about what they're going to learn about his theories of the letters and what they are sure well he a couple things now the look the there's an article by his former partner darlene on the letters that's that's excellent also that's looking at him as waveguides so I think that's maybe the part that you opened up I'm yeah. there. I'm not sure. Well, I'm, but then I'm his whole calling yeah. the whole book his essentially. Yeah. God. Well, and and who knows? I mean, I think a lot of the ideas, well, you know what? I'm not even going to say that because I uh a lot of the articles that were in there um are from the Journal of the Western Mystery Tradition, and he revised them in there um, from the Journal of the Western Mystery Tradition and added to them. But the center part of it was the the biggest Enochian working that I know of in my lifetime. And I, I wasn't there, but I know quite a few people who were there. And so that's the complete Enochian handbook. So in that, and I'll get to the letters, okay, but in that, what he's doing is looking at each component of the Enochian system as in terms of what geometric shape it is. And these are all shapes that rotate. Now that came, I think, I'm certain, uh, he talked about it as a, a visionary experience of, of, of interacting and seeing those shapes. But then with the letters at a certain point, um, you know, you're working with this system and you think, why am I working with this system? In other words, Enochian is not the best system for doing a usual magical thing like, I don't know, working your will over someone or that kind of thing. It is, we it, you, you start to feel, or at least we have, that it's helping you 
evolve and stay healthy. I know this goes counter to common belief, but this this is our experience. So he had he uh, wrote a thing called Angels in the DNA, which is um, actually it's my favorite article of his, where he looked at how you could arrange the letters and the weird way that they map and how they could map to transfer RNA. I'm not sure if that's the one you're talking about, but that's the one that is my favorite, and it it looks at a it draws on a uh, a couple of articles that looked at the I Ching that way, actually. Like, if you're going to have these trigrams and these trigrams and put them together, you could shuffle these in the same way that DNA shuffles itself. That's, that's a very, very general idea. But, you know, how do you prove such a thing? It's like, you can't. I remember when he was trying to cite that, and he asked me to, because this, we were past our bit of me sending him, sending him, you know, people ranting about his citation style on freshman comp sites. We were in a good place then. And he was like, could you find a way to cite this? And I'm like, well, you've cited it. And he was like, well, yeah, but this just sounds like from the angels to me or something. And I was like, well, that's basically what it is, isn't it? Because it was, it was just a kind of unprovable download, but it's kind of awesome. Anyway, that's yeah. the one I thought you were talking about. If you're talking about the one about them as waveforms. Um, I've looked at both of them, yeah. 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 Um, that well, the one about the letters as waveforms grew out of the one he wrote. And then I think, um, I remember when Darlene was writing that one and she was writing it, it was something he'd always talked about a lot, but she was a, was a, a photographer. And so she really did a, a beautiful articulation of it. But that's about all I'd. Yeah. Uh, so by that, you know, it seems to me that the difficulty people have with Enochian can be explained by a series of things that are, are fairly simple. First of all, not doing it in a Tiferetic space, not doing it for sort of personal spiritual alchemy, but trying to, to work one's will with it, and then having tablets that are mislettered, because we never have any of those problems. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, there is some... There's yeah, people. Uh, uh, Christina or Athena Wallander was trained at the same temple as me here in Vancouver, and her book has oh. how to work with the caco demons and stuff. I guess which would be perhaps interesting if you were trying to solve cancer rather than cure it. Though I'm sure people. <laughs> have... Fortunately, the Enochian system kind of protects itself against misuse due to its yeah complexity and yeah. And, and, and and right. You can do a lot with provisional tools and things made of carbon paper, but they I. I I was trained on a classical table in the Golden Dawn. We used a classical table, classical setup, just, you know, cut out some of the uh, prayers that I would now not cut out. Um, mm -hmm. But you can do a lot with it without the full setup. But what you can do with the full setup is, 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 is seems to me, in my opinion, head and shoulders above the rest. And, and the fact that its aim is at spiritual development, spiritual alchemy, and it comes like, did Kelly read? The Monus Hieroglyphica. I tried to ask this on the Enochian group that oh. um, that that I've gotten so much help from in the past, yeah. and I owe yeah. I owe Chris uh, um, uh, it's runner the person the lady who runs it oh, Maria Montgomery? Maria Montgomery an apology yeah. because early on I said that I didn't see the Monus having any impact in my relationship to Enochian magic or pursuit of the great work at all, and she said, "Well, for me, it definitely does." I'm like, "Well, I'm open to that. I'm open to hearing why it would have that, but it just hasn't based on my understanding of it." And thank you for bringing that understanding now to me. And so, sorry, oh. Maria, for not not 
not copying on sooner, but I'm now my eyes are open and the things have fallen, the scales have fallen from them. And uh, I can't imagine Enochian magic or D or the Golden Dawn without the Monus Hieroglyphica now, well, which is but, such a crazy revolution in my thinking that it's it's it makes me giddy every time I contemplate it. That's well, like there's there is a reason for that. Like the the most basic connection between the two is obscured by translation, and that's like elementata, which yeah. would be like air of air or air of earth or you know air of fire. I mean, a an element and a sub element. That word was constantly mistranslated in just as element. So how would you see that he is breaking things up in the Monus Hieroglyphica using the same kind of system that then shows up in Enochian? I mean, there was no translation available, and so that was, um, you know, in with me, I would say, well, thank, thanks to uh, thanks to those scholars who were writing about medieval text using the word elementata, who figured out that that's what it was. But yeah, you know. yeah, scholarship um, is always a team effort, really, if you do it right, as you as you pointed out. How? But you know, did, did, yeah, go ahead. No, did Kelly was did he explain the monus to Kelly? Because well, there's there, things I mean, Kelly brings through that seems like he understood the monus. And if he didn't, well, that's a coincidence, isn't it? Um, I'm just yeah. curious. It's just a sick curiosity. I just want to know. So I think I think that Kelly had to be way smarter than people give him credit for, first of all. And and just to, you know, when people talk about whether or not this could be faked and they say it couldn't be faked, well, then add to that. Or if anyone did fake it, they're just such a genius and so literarily skilled. I I, I want to know them anyway. So I think I, I can't imagine that Kelly didn't understand it. For one thing, I'm sure it was used in espionage. You could use it to make great uh, um clock ciphers and you know i mentioned when i was in this voynich group working with glenn plaston or tim rayhill he that's that's what he saw the whole thing is doing well if they're there as intelligencers and there is something they're using that for well yeah but then on top of that the most embarrassing mistake i have made in my history as a uh, writing about john d was when i started out i was sure that the tuba veneris was by John D. And the reason I was sure was because it connected to his life so clearly in ways that someone wouldn't really know. And I, I, um, through my Hubert, I insisted John D did it. Well, I don't, I don't, I think I was wrong. Uh, and I hope I have the opportunity to have our revised translation republished and, and say I was wrong. I don't think that it was by D. But as the German translator points out, and I'm trying to think of his name and blocking it, but he says, this is a, this is a, a forgery, but it's a really weird forgery. Um, and this will, I, I promise, this will connect to the hieroglyphic monad in oh. just a sec. Um, he, he's like, this is a forgery. And he said it was probably written in a German speaking country between, I think, like 15, eight, sometime in the 1580s, basically when Dee and Kelly were there. And it, by somebody who knew intimate details of Dee's life. Well, the other thing that that translator, uh, George Meyer, maybe anyway, that he that uh, that he didn't say, I noticed when Nancy Turner and I were working on it. And that was, gosh, whoever did this really knew the hieroglyphic monad. Well, since the person there who most likely knew intimate details of Dee's life and we know that Kelly got a lot of mileage out of being Dee's sidekick. And Jennifer Rampling talks about that in her scholarship that like Dee's, Dee has Ripley's bosom uh, book, which is 
George Ripley's kind of secret alchemical text. Dee goes back to England, and every place that Kelly is doing alchemy, all of a sudden there's all of the bosom book. I even think, and I, I argued uh, that in my class, that people like Heinrich Kuhnrath, who associate the monad with physical alchemy, that the reason is Kelly and Kelly's success with physical alchemy. So if, for example, it was Kelly that did the tube of Veneris, that person, whoever wrote it, whoever did that forgery, knew the hieroglyphic monad. And to me, that's sort of the best evidence that Kelly understood it. Not to mention the best explanation I ever got it, uh, for it until I started diving in myself was from Vincent, who claimed to have the memories of Kelly. And he hasn't been, there were things he said about it that I just totally ignored. And then um, looked at more than 10 years later, and I was like, holy crap, he was right. I mean, he, he, he could be a, a very frustrating individual on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, if you're right a lot of the time and you don't know why you're right and people always are telling you you're wrong, I mean, I think you kind of get an attitude. So, I mean, I understand the attitude that, that he had. Anyway. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the, and that the video on the turba was really good. I, I did all the word study videos as well, all the offshoot things, the oh, Zosimos three vid, everything. Of course, so of course, I had to. You are appreciated. Oh, well, just, 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 uh, just, I like, I like to say, you know, beware, beware putting, giving, uh, you know, academics no job and too much time on their hands. Um, <laughs> lockdown was the worst thing for everyone who knew me because you know they just kept telling me to look into things and I looked into it way too much like you should have yeah. seen me when I looked into QAnon they're like what's I was like what is this they're oh, like wow. look into it and so I was like well I've got nothing to do 40 hours later I was like okay I see why people are buying this a bit but yeah it's yeah. of course insane yeah. um <laughs> Yeah, no, I. Uh, but there's it, there's always stuff in it. There's always enough in it to to pull you into the theory, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it. otherwise it, it wouldn't work, you know. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so um, where was I? That well, yeah, right. So yeah, in 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 going through all the videos, um, and the the corollary ones especially that highlight even just simple word studies that are is is so illuminating. The. It seems almost impossible to me that that like D couldn't have been teaching about the monas as he went around Europe. This is going back to the Yates Francis yeah. Yates thesis on setting up Rosicrucianism by communicating his ideas to people as he traveled around. And why wouldn't he do that? It seems why wouldn't he do that is a hard question to answer. Um, of yeah. course he would do that. Like anyone, even even when I've traveled and run into Golden Dawn people who are in uh, working who are in orders. Um, different to the one I trained in. Obviously, you know, you sort of graduate from these things and move on, right? Even then, they're they're the people, their temple temple chiefs have often told them to work with me because, like, oh yeah, even if he comes from a different group that we might not be friends with anymore, <laughs> or and that, and of course, I'm not in any groups anymore. If I just was 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah. Um, no, they still say work with that person because we're we're rare people the, that who who are into this stuff, right? And if you don't take the chance to learn from them while they're there, so I think of just that minor experience in my reality, and then look at D and Kelly going around Europe, yeah. all these places, and then afterwards the the fama fraternitatis and the confessio and the chemical wedding with the 
the Monus Hieroglyphica right on the front of it. And people have been oh. saying my whole life that there's no connection between John Dee and the Rosicrucian tradition. That's just... I just think that that's got to be thrown out, you know, and, and I don't know how Yates figured that out, but I think she was just dead on. I mean, the philosophy behind the Monet is the is proto-Rosicrucianism. And, and it... It gets condensed in in all kinds of ways, but and you know, and then there's also in the FAMA. And by the way, this isn't my idea. I want to shout out to my friend uh, Jeffrey Kupperman because he noticed this. And then I was yeah. like, oh wow, I agree with you. You know, in the FAMA, it's re it's referring to this strange language. Well, maybe that's Enochian. I mean, the question I have about the later Rosicrucian stuff is not um, does why he affect? More, why isn't there Enochian in it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's Until the question I have the, about it. The only thing that looks like it to me, like it can be related, is that that part in the FAMA. And then it doesn't show up until like the ciphers, right? Right. The cipher manuscripts. And then you are have to figure like, well, Alan Thurgood found in the British Library some people in the 1700s who were using it, but they didn't seem to be using it to great effect, really, or anything like that. And um, you know, there's all Dr. Rudd, um, and then there are people like I think it's Peter Smart who's a copyist. And, yeah. I mean, you can you can really kind of crank, but but that's different from thinking. Okay, this is this is what these are people doing are doing to set this up. So how does it show up then? I mean, I know there's Hockley, and Hockley is copying things. Um, but uh, I think there there's there's still some big gaps that that we haven't found. In other words, like I basically accept the account with the cipher manuscript and how it winds up in there that Hockley is the source of Enochian. and he has to be. I mean, I don't see anyone else, but then all right, where is Hockley getting it from? One thing that's occurred to me is we you know, people tend to believe that Eliphas Levi did had no interest in it and thought it was evil. and i I sort of have difficulty believing that. but that could, I, yeah, I hear a lot of different things about a good old LFLAV, and uh, okay. I do hope to read his uh, the Churton's biography on him one day because I would like. I've heard that he never practiced magic. I've heard that he pioneered all of Golden Dawn magic and wrote the LBRP, which definitely isn't yeah. true. Um, but I've heard many things like like we all have, and it's very hard to tell with with him and that period yeah. that that produced Elephas Levy. Um, coming from the Elizabethan period up through the 1600s, uh, birth of Rosicrucianism into like, yeah, Memphis Mizraim masonry and all these other different forms of the heyday of the early masonry, as well as this popular time for alchemy and where we know they were using substances and stuff. And here's the question. I, I, I when it comes to that, that the development of Enochian Rosicrucianism and all of those streams into the Victorian ma magical eras and, and associated systems, I think of the fact that if they if they weren't using um, uh, DMT, then where was DMT in history, right? Like um, the argument against cannabis in the biblical times, even though they grew fields of it, was that there's no word for it. And of course, we're like, well, what about cannabosum? Can cannabosum have referred to cannabis? Like, no, it referred to this other thing. It's like, so they had no word to refer to the thing they grew fields of. Right. If it's not that word, then you're saying they had no word for it. And that's what my Hebrew professor and Bible teachers taught us in at UBC, yeah. um, that, huh. that that was in reference to cannabis. But it really does oh. look like it must be. So if, if DMT doesn't show up at all in history ever until now, which isn't 
doesn't make any sense, then where is it? And we do see it in the Masonic rites. We do see it in Cagliostro and, and perhaps being made by Kelly and Dee. And if that was what it was, it would it would definitely lead to the kind of secrecy as well as mind-blowing experiences that they people like that were having. And I could see why they'd want to keep it as a very secret, as the Philosopher's Stone, the secret of the philosophers, to only show yeah, to the... I candidates that would be the only argument i could come up with again it's not a hill i'm willing to die on and if there's yeah, none of, if yeah. none of that stuff is it was a part of the western esoteric tradition i would be fine with that i just i i just don't know enough about it yeah uh, and the the you know that's all i all i can say about it. now vincent had a theory about rudolph uh you know the holy roman emperor rudolph the second i heard of him who, yeah. nice who night yeah yeah apparently he had uh kind of a drinking problem and kind of went downhill when kelly was in prison and so i started looking at that too because i was fast, like what happens to rudolph here and and we had different theories and then i mean we were in prague so it was kind of nice like you and and this was right after also that a czech scholar found um information in germany about kelly basically saying that his knighthood was not exactly granted by Rudolph, but that it was an Irish knighthood and there were letters from England saying that he's he's Sir Edward Kelly. Now, which which really changed Kelly's scholarship. Hmm. But so so one of the the theories floating around there was that when Kelly was free, he was making some kind of concoction that was keeping Rudolph, you know, okay. And then with Kelly in prison and Rosenberg dead or perhaps poisoned, which is another theory because he dies at a real inopportune time, that um, that whatever Rudolph's medicine was that Kelly was making, he didn't get. And so he goes downhill. Who knows? I mean, I maybe like that. that's a know. fun story. Did Kelly's family really poison him in prison? I don't. I, do, I think someone did. I don't know why his uh, that. So. So in Vincent's book on Kelly, he wrote a short story about what he thought, which was that um, that it was like Kelly's family, but under duress of like, you do this or else. And yeah, he was right. going, he'd already broken a leg anyway. And so maybe there was some kind of, of complicity there. But uh, the, that last chapter of Kelly's life, Vincent wrote as a, a short story about how he thinks that Kelly died, which hmm. is basically that that his wife poisoned him. Wow. Um, well, I, I, have, has... I, I honestly have no opinion on that. I really don't. Given the things he said about his wife, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> that guy did not like that woman. <laughs> they must have been. In... Well, if I my theory about him money. is right. What? He married her for money and unfortunately not very much. Like 200 well, pounds. Well, that's, that's, that's the story. But what if he was told, like, you're going to marry this person because she's the parent of these two kids that this noble dude knocked up. And so you're going to leave and and go with D. And for that matter, I mean, it's... um. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's part of the thing I'm exploring in my like national inquire history of Dee and Kelly and their families. I mean, I love it. The whole the whole relationship between between Dee and his wife is odd, too. It's just not as odd. And they do seem to at least like each other. So 
I hope that everyone who's everyone, everyone studying Enochian magic, even half as seriously as as we are before in in this era, puts out a novel about them before they die. We just could use a whole bunch <laughs> of them, I think. Just get all the ideas out there. Get even the crazy ones out there. Maybe especially the crazy ones. Yeah. Uh, so many things can be found by these wild ideas. I mean, the idea that not only is the Monus Hieroglyphica outlining a system of spiritual initiation and spiritual alchemy, explicitly spiritual alchemy, going yeah. from Zosimus through the Codex Marcianus direct, directly to D and then directly from D through Rosicrucian and the Golden Dawn, and outlining those elemental progressions in the sequence the Golden Dawn uses. That, that seemed to me unbelievable. Well, like, and I don't... That's just what I think, you know. The the sort of verdict of the elders of the Golden Dawn is 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 out on that. I I I don't. But I think when sure they realize is, what sure you've done, they're going to be very interested. Well, it, I mean, it is odd though. Like, right? We have now. You realize we're in Malkuth of Asaya, and there is the first four grades. That sure seems similar, and we have four elements. It sure seems similar. Although there's a a certain sleight of hand. Then that happens like with the thing, the the grades that would be associated with Netzach and Hod. It's hard to attribute, but then those both become M. I mean, this is way later on in the monad. Yeah, so I'm sorry, but they're in Malkut anyway. Yeah, right, right. And there's all these the the. So I can't see it any other way, but you know maybe someone else can. He's definitely there is no question he's outlining a, a, the path of the initiate. I mean, there is to me absolutely no question of that. But um, if it's, but then that also means someone understood it. And my vote for that, as you know, someone who is is I'm only an an elder in age. I am no elder of any magical order. Um, is that? I mean, lately it's become all right with people to just bash Mathers. I mean, oh. I I I like. I like Nick Farrell a lot. I did not like his book on Mathers. Oh, um, I enjoyed and, it, even though I like Mathers. I still, yeah. I, well, the, you know, we have so little of this stuff in our sphere yeah. of study. It's we'll take what we can get, even if it's we, uh, a bit wild. But it, but Mathers and Westcott together, and they weren't the only ones. I mean, if they under, understood the monad as well as you do now, for example, couldn't you easily make that attribution? Regardless of if that's what D intended, and I think D is—he's—he says in effect he's making two grades, and one of them has four subgrades. So it's, you... it's so crazy. I really do think that this is going to revolutionize the Golden Dawn world, um, but maybe not. Maybe it'll stay too stodgy. Um, but I think that people will love this. I think uh, like. Uh, uh, in in the introduction to the portal papers put out by uh, the ever reliable Hellfire Press, um, Tony Fuller uh, mentions yeah. how quickly the grade material was actually produced, um, and how much of it was produced, yeah. and how impossible it would be for one person, Mathers being the main one during mm -hmm. this key window um, that mm -hmm. Doctor Fuller discusses, um, yeah, and right. put out all. It's it's too much for one person to put out in a year and a half or two or three years. Well, there, and it no was way. almost and all there from the very beginning of the order onward. And yet we see things that were done habitually in the order. For example, 
like using the sign of the entrance, sign of silence in certain rituals that aren't there in the manuscripts in the earliest form or even in the later forms from the New Zealand temple. So it just points to how much oral tradition and oral teaching there still was, especially in the Golden Dawn. People like to think it's all in Regardie or something, and we're slowly changing that understanding. It's depressing yeah. to think that the majority of the information is unpublished and, and even worse. Yeah lost to oral tradition perhaps a lot of well, it which i don't think it so if you if you now i i am not going to presume to remember all the knowledge lectures but let me just like take some stabs at things some of the things that d is assuming that you know if you go through the monas hieroglyphic is clearly you know the hebrew alphabet you know the hebrew for the sephiroth you know the the four worlds you know the zodiacal signs and you know how to divide them into elements and you know the triplicities, you know alchemical symbols, you know, I mean, after a while, it's like you're reading it. You're, it's, it's like you're assuming, okay, maybe no one is going to read this, the, all of these works and know these associations anymore, so we'll turn them into a knowledge lecture. Here, you need to learn the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and you need to learn these words about them, and then you need to learn all the spheres of Isaiah, and I mean, it, it's, if nothing else, wherever that material came from, people, there, there was certainly an assumption that maybe people didn't know as much as they used to know anymore. And that's like, what, in the 1890s? So I see that. And that critique, I find, actually cuts both ways a lot of the time. Um, you yeah. know, it's like, it's, it's sort of always true. It's like they didn't know. Like, yeah, you wouldn't want to know, be as limited as a Victorian. Uh, no. Uh, academic was but you also wouldn't mind knowing a lot of the stuff that they know because yeah. a lot of it's just not taught anymore again we didn't grow up with greek and latin well i had some latin in waller school but not enough um to make much of a impression it's just like a little exposure but like well, you know if i if i could do one thing again in my life it would be to learn ancient greek i really i've tried and i think now i'm too old really i honestly do because what a language of like the perfect language at greek for philosophical discourse i mean just shades of meaning they, they don't exist in english but they didn't exist in latin I mean, they it's it's such a beautiful language and it's not like modern Greek either. I mean, which is not to diss modern Greek, which I also don't speak. But I, I mean, I wish I could could uh, learn ancient Greek. You know, I recently was going to take a Koine class at, at my old uh, grad school here on on uh, that or classical Greek. And I, I had a long chat with Dr. Sasha Chato, who did the mm -hmm. Peladan book. Um, Joseph N. Peladen, and she actually told me don't do that. And she's a, really? a she lives in Greece and speaks it fluently. And I was like, really? Yeah, that's what I said. Really? And she's like, go take a modern Greek course. The language hasn't died. It's doing fine. Start with modern Greek. You'll learn it all eventually. Like you know, just go from there. And I was like, well, that would be way more fun because I love Greek. Food. Then you can speak it. Yeah. Yeah. And then yeah. yeah um, it which is. I wouldn't give that advice to someone with Hebrew be, just from my understanding of how Hebrew has changed from biblical to modern. I mean, right. in modern Hebrew, you have tense. We don't mm -hmm. have that in biblical Hebrew. There's no mm -hmm. tense. And of course, yeah. everyone's like, well, how do you know when it's a prophecy or not? It's like, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Think about that. <laughs> you got a conversive vav. That's it. If there's a conversive vav, you know it's probably past tense, but not always. Just well, for fun. Yeah. Well, and then the whole bit with, with vowels is like it makes... You have a way of thinking that has been lost, and that's one of the things I realized working on this translation. I mean, it was being lost 
by the Renaissance, but you can kind of tease it out. It's like, so with it is the assumption that everything sacred has this multiplicity of meanings and it's always, there's a, this constant unveiling, which is, I don't know, kind of awesome. And yeah, and, and the way you demonstrated that the the later Rosicrucians solving a mystery in the Monas Hieroglyphica with, with vitriol was, was amazing. And everyone in the GD tradition will hear me say that and be like, no way. And go watch the course, yeah, no, fellas, ladies. Yeah. Everyone well, that, that's in the, and that comes from Agnes Klein. That was her discovery. I would Agnes Klein, if you're alive and listen to this, please call me, find me. Yeah. Well, we definitely I mean, we, we need to get together some uh, some sort of more de conferences or things in the near future. Hey, that would be that fun. Would, um, well, listen, clearly I, lots I, to I, study, I, and Peterson's got a new version of this coming out this year in August. I no, believe. I didn't know that. I yeah, it's like a uh, hundred and ten dollars on my Amazon uh, thing page. Oh, I okay. noticed it. And I'm clearly he's adding that. the new information from I'm hoping and assuming he's adding the information from De Compendia, a De, De Heptarchia Mystica yeah. the manuscript, then the Compendia mm -hmm. and the Lexic the the new one, the, the one that, yeah. from 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 Ashmole 1790. That's yeah, really Yeah, I wanna I wanna uh um find out uh, more about Ashmole 1790, but um yeah. I hate to I hate to tell you this, but actually, in about ten minutes, I'm going to have to run. I, I didn't get to talk this long. I'm really glad that we have. Well, I, 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 I me too, me too, absolutely, and we can do it again whenever you want. Before you oh. go, can I ask? Uh, do you play the harp behind you? No, um, Alan plays the harp. He plays both of them. He's uh, he's the world's only Enochian harper, as far as I know. Wow. Well, does he do a little Carolan or Celtic stuff at all? Oh yeah, yeah. He um. He actually he he plays a lot of Irish music on the harp, oh. and he plays guitar, and he plays the you know I I appreciate the music, and I don't ruin it by singing along. Well, I mean, I actually I, I play guitar, but no, the the harps are uh, are are Alan's. He's that's he's, a, that's great. I hope I I hope to do some tunes with him, have a session with him sometime. Yeah, um, what do you play? I, I play the Illin pipes. Oh oh, yeah. that would so cool. Yeah. Well, we have to find a way to do this sometime. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't. It's why I wasn't too choked by my doctoral program falling apart because I was I was living in Ireland. I was playing the Illin pipes with world famous pipers I'd listened to my whole life, and you know, hanging out with with people I'd look up to in the Celtic musical community as a child. And then I got to go live and hang out with them, and that was like, okay, who needs a PhD? Yeah. Of course, you know. Now it's like, well, it wouldn't have been the worst thing to finish before Nicholas died. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess maybe I have time for one quick last question. Um, um, no, I'll maybe save some of these for 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 next time. Um, oh, there was one that you were. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah. What did you think? Well, you were uh, somewhat. We were talking about uh, Athanasius Kircher, and if he was a secret magician, was I he don't a crypto think, magician well, I think you're right. I think he, I think he was hostile to magic. Yeah, I, I think, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I just thought, I, I, mean, I just thought you might know something I didn't know. No, no, I don't. I mean, I know expert on Athanasius Kircher. Okay, I'm not, but and yeah. I admit I have a little chip on my shoulder about him because it's like people like Heinrich Kuhnrath, like they're attributing, they're they're saying. John D says this in his letter to Maximilian, or they're using the monad symbol, and Kircher just rips things off whole cloth. I mean, it really, after a while, 
it just gets infuriating. And I know the time was different and I know plagiarism was not a thing then and all of that, but, but whole swaths of the hieroglyphic monad, they're just in Oedipus Aegypticus, including like all the measurements in theorem 23, but not only that, the only nice thing about reading it for me was that was where I was going through and I'm like why is he talking about the Timaeus all the time with this thing that looks like the monad and then I was like oh my gosh I missed a huge context and went back and 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 studied the Timaeus for a while and and I'm lucky that I was at that time in a department that included philosophy and I bothered my friends there constantly about the Timaeus you know and so, I mean, that was nice, but then he also tries to, he's, he's a, a piece of work, and I think yeah, now we should stop. <laughs> Sorry. But, no, um, that's okay. I mean, he ripped off Johannes Reuchlin as well. And yeah, people, yeah. And, and, oh, yeah. And, and, and I would say there's nothing necessarily wrong with that per se, especially in that time period. But in my opinion, gauging, knowing what I know about the history of theology and religious orders, mm -hmm. I like and look at the way he diagrammed the angels around the name of of, of Jesus, right? And and Damien Eccles turned that into a wonderful full-on ritual where you invoke all the angels in the same layout that yeah. that that, yeah. that, um, that, that Kierkegaard had. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Oh. So wow. the reason and he he gives the four-letter names of every culture that represent God, but he anytime he ran into a culture that had more or less than four letters, he just changed it. And the whole purpose yeah. of the diagram was to show that Jesus is overall. You know, this it, it was yeah. a Jesuit, you know, Christos Uberalis kind of argument, and and he wasn't favorable to magicians at all. So it's ironic as hell that magicians like Damien Eccles are turn turning his yeah. diagrams into rituals of massive evocation. I. I <laughs> I love I that that's... idea, actually. It sort of, <laughs> but then we we'll get back into the thing. The thing is, even Roycklin, like Roycklin, you know, who, at least who many of his sources of Kabbalah are. So, like, yeah, he's appropriating, and we can say whatever you want about appropriate, but you know where he got it from. I mean, and that's how you can trace a lineage where Kircher is just like, mine, this is mine. Look, it's mine. Anyway, that's my opinion of Kircher since you 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 mentioned it before. Yeah, I got a I got a bone to pick with Kircher, but at the same because he's so, you know, uh, Christo totalitarian, but at the same time it, he's kind of wonderful because of all the beautiful work he yeah. did and, and you know, I mean, yeah. humans aren't simple, so that's what a great that's what a great little great. Uh, quirky note to end on with uh, <laughs> the the later the Jesuit uh, uh appropriation of John D and Christian Cabal and all these things to you know, for their, their agenda. Yeah. Well, I, call it. He's, I tell you, and I should like him anyway. He's an, he's an awesome source for trying to figure out the monad because. Well, you wouldn't have, so you wouldn't have even looked at Timaeus in your translation. If it I weren't. Think I, I don't know. I think I would have gotten to it eventually, but I mean, cause this is like 2007 that I was going through Kircher and all of this. Um, and I mean, I think I would have gotten to it eventually, but it by the time I'm here is this glyph of of the monads. Here is his explanation of things, just like in the hieroglyphic monad. But he's referring all over the place to Timaeus. It it sure supercharged the process. I mean, before then, I just thought since that that whole sun symbol is also a symbol of the Pythagorean monad, and since he's doing all this stuff that are clear references to Plato's Republic in the letter, I was like and. D is well known as a Neoplatonist. I was 
looking at it that way, but it hadn't occurred to me like all of the way that he's overlapping the the receptacle and Bina and things like that. No, I, I mean, I hope I would have run into it eventually without without his help. <laughs> Man, there's so much. Uh, I, I I hope that we can do this again sometime. Yeah, I've got, your, book, your book will be arriving uh, at some point with me. I've got it uh, ordered, and Whoa. and then I'll go through the whole course again. And and really, this time I just absorbed. I was like, okay, I know I'm going to hear this in uh, this 50 hour video course multiple times in my life. So how how do I want to approach? And I thought about it. And I just was like, I'm just going to absorb. And uh, the exercises were good, though. Uh, you know, if you know the knowledge lectures well, unfortunately, they're um, less challenging. Uh, if you, uh, there's some good challenges, though, in in those in, in mysteries left to uncover. There's mysteries left to uncover. Well, I just appreciate you you watching along. I, I'm I'm very sincere about that, and really kind of psyched to discover your stuff, which I had not looked at until until this course, and we got in contact with each other. And I'm I, so I hope we can get together and do Enochian sometime. I sort of have a sense we will before this, as they say, this dance is through anyway. Beautiful. Well, Dr. Terry Burns, thank you so much for being my guest today, and I I can't wait to uh, continue this journey in life with uh with you and all the other wonderful people i get to meet along the way so thank you thank you thank you have a good rest of your night too <laughs>